and welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 111th episode, our returning guest is Jonathan Fowler. You first heard Jonathan Fowler on episodes 2, 10, 20, 21, 29, 30, 31, 32, 34, 35, 43, 48, 51, 56, 64, 74, 83, 92, 102, 103, 104, 105, 106, 107, 108, 109, and episode 82. Also featuring fellow regular guest Ash Burgess of the podcast. Jonathan graduated with a BA in history from Indiana University in 2006. He is an unabashed left-wing political junkie. He has lived and worked in South Korea for over 10 years, trying to help the citizens of that great nation hopefully talk pretty one day. If you listen to the last four episodes, you heard us talk about The Wire. On this episode, we'll be discussing up through Season 3, Episode 3. So consider this your blanket spoiler alert. And now on to the show. Hello? Hey, Jeff. Hey, what's up, Bob? Hey, nothing much. Sorry for being so late. Emerald is uh, teething at the moment, so she's been uh, falling asleep more during the day because she's not sleeping much at night anymore, so... Oh. Okay. Sounds complicated. <laughs> it is. When teeth are cutting through your head, it's not a very restful situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, well, yeah, it's been a big day in Korea, obviously, here. Yeah, yeah I've been following it from afar. It's been uh, historic. I mean, we'll see what comes of it, but, you know, uh, North Korea, I don't know. We'll see. They make a lot of promises. They break a lot of promises. They lie. Donald Trump lies. Mm-hmm. You know, Donald Trump needed the win this time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he, you know, they got some photo ops and stuff, which is, you know, probably Donald Trump's favorite thing to get. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. You know, it's um, the, I mean, he wants to. He's already basically committed to ending the uh, defense drills or whatever that they do, the, the cooperative uh, military exercises they do a couple times, like twice a year, I'd say, with South Korea. Yeah, I saw the statement from the Blue House that was like, oh, we don't know what he meant by that. <laughs> yeah, that, that'll be interesting because it'll be interesting to see what Moon Jae-in, the Korean president, says because... Uh, uh, it's well it's really complicated because i mean i think conservative south koreans would say that liberal south koreans wanted to end the military drills anyways but if the korean president doesn't actually want to end the military drills i mean this could be trump complained about the 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 cost you know and he complained about oh man we're flying these uh we've got to fly these military jets all the way from guam up to south korea he's like and i know about airplanes they're very expensive because you know i i created trump air which i ran into the ground very rapidly i thought you were going to say because he made mike pence fly to indiana to walk out of the colts game for the players kneeling (laughs) and the cost of that that, that, that's that's on taxpayers dime don't even worry about that (laughs) okay right sorry (laughs) i suppose the guam flights are too (laughs) but you know it's his budget now so Uh um yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I don't know. And I'm doing something that I've wanted to do from the beginning. We stopped playing those war games that cost us a fortune. You know, we're spending a fortune every number of months. We're doing war games with South Korea. And I said, 
What's this costing? We're flying planes in from Guam and we're bombing empty mountains for practice. And I said, I want to stop that and I will stop that. And I think it's very provocative, especially, George, since we're getting along. In other words, we're in the process of signing something. Excuse Did me? Did you talk about pulling troops out, U.S. troops we out? We didn't discuss that, no, but we're not going to play the war games. You know, I wanted to stop the war games. I thought they were very provocative, but I also think they're very expensive. We're running the country properly. I think they're very, very expensive to do it. We have to fly planes in from Guam that's six and a half hours away, big bombers and everything else. I said, who's paying for this? I mean, who pays for in order to practice? What are the so kinds of so one of the things that I suggested and I want to do is we're going to stop the war games unless for some reason we're unable to go for it. Um, you know, the, 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 the line from South Korea and America has always been that the, the drills are not offensive in nature, that they're defensive in nature. And so, mm -hmm. you know, they're necessary to protect South Korea. Mm -hmm. um, but if Donald Trump thinks, well, we can, we can save a buck here by not doing these things anymore. Um, I don't know. I just think it, it it goes in hand with what else has happened this past week with the uh, the G7 summit, where some people are saying it was basically like the G6, you know, plus Trump, <laughs> who was, you know, not making friends there. Mm -mm. Um, but you know, these are allies. These are traditional allies that he's alienating, and. You know, and for him to also say, okay, and South Korea has been a traditional ally for about 70 years, and we are ending our mutual defense drills that we've been doing with them for, you know, time immemorial. So, you know, I think that sends a message possibly to, you know, other allies that, oh, well, America's not going to take its defense commitments to other countries that it's allied with very seriously, and it's going to, you know, mm -hmm. seek deals, which may not even be very good deals with its traditional enemies and the enemies of these other countries and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I don't know. It's... Um, and, all, you know, the talk about he wants to bring the troops back from Korea, I think, is a uh, it's a disaster. It's a very bad idea, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. At some point, I have to be honest, and I used to say this during my campaign, as you know, probably better than most. Uh, I want to get our soldiers out. I want to bring our soldiers back home. We have right now 32,000 soldiers in South Korea. And I'd like to be able to bring them back home, but that's not part of the equation right now. At some point, I hope it will be, but not right now. We will be stopping the war games, which will save us a tremendous amount of money, unless and until we see that the future negotiation is not going along like it should. But we'll be saving a tremendous amount of money. Plus, I think it's very provocative. I would have to probably reevaluate my continued staying in Korea if they pulled the American troops out of here at some point, because that's, you know, I don't know, you know, whether or not North Korea does anything militarily. I mean, China is right nearby too. I'm not saying that they would invade or anything necessarily, but like, I don't know. He doesn't, I'm not sure that Trump, I, I don't know. Things, things have been, relatively stable for a very long time and a lot of presidents presidents have been doing the very same thing and i don't know you know the optimistic the small optimistic part of me the cautiously optimistic part of me says well you know um 
not talking to the North Korea because whatever, you know, mm-hmm. is it hasn't, you know, it's maintained the status quo, but it, you know, hasn't really moved us forward. And maybe, maybe just talking to the guy will move things forward, but uh, I don't know. You know, he still goes to China. He, Kim Jong-un takes his, takes his uh, cues from China, I think. And I, I think, I don't know. I imagine there's a lot going beyond on behind the scenes as far as what China wants and what they're telling North Korea to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that they have in mind a great deal for America. I don't think that's what they're playing towards. Mm-hmm. I think they're playing towards reducing the American footprint in East Asia mm-hmm. so that they can, you know, build up those islands or whatever. And, you know, it's, I don't know. They, they may be playing chess and Trump is losing a game of checkers. Basically. <laughs> it's like, that, that may be where we are. Right. We, we How could we know, you know? Uh-huh. Well, I remember when this was first uh, discussed, I remember we talked about it and I expressed my dismay that, you know, that this was going to be the moment that Kim Jong-un wanted about legitimacy. And and I remember you were kind of dismissive of that idea. Um, but now that we've seen the photos of the intermingling uh, American and North Korean flags and the and the handshake and, and the photo ops like you were talking about, how, are, do you have you reevaluated that at all? Do you still think that's not ter- a terrible thing? for them or well I mean I don't know at the end of the day you know we could well I mean we could at tremendous cost of the you know our allies here in Korea and Japan and stuff I mean we could wipe the floor with Korea tomorrow if Trump winds up in jail for treason or something and we mm-hmm. you know something has to go the other way but um, I don't know. I mean, legitimacy. Who does he have legitimacy with? I mean, he already has legitimacy with the North Korean people who don't have a choice about it. And, you know, um, he, he's not going to have much re- legitimacy with the international community, I don't think, who consider things like um, uh, human rights uh, and nuclear irresponsibility and uh, launching missiles over neighboring countries lands territory and kidnapping people and uh, just, you know, uh, using chemical wet warfare to assassinate members of their own royal family in third-party countries. I mean, it's just like, I mean, that he, okay, what, that's not legitimacy. He doesn't have legitimacy on the international stage because of this necessarily. Um, you know, if anything... Trump is, you know, delegitimizing America's uh, Mm -hmm. position, I guess. Right. Well, beefing with Canada, like you're saying, with the G7 and all that. Yeah, Canada and France. Um, I I caught bits of the uh, George Stephanopoulos interview, which was, you know, interesting. It's it's bizarre. I mean, the past 24 hours have been bizarre. Um, Trump is, like, complaining that he's been awake for 25 hours or something, and, you know. I haven't slept in 25 hours, but I thought it was appropriate to do because we've been negotiating for literally round the clock with them and with us and with John and with Mike and a whole team of very talented people. Okay, good. Yeah, I mean, hopefully you're still functioning at a high level when you're sleep deprived. <laughs> but um, right. not all of us can do it. Uh-huh. I've been awake for about, I would guess, 20 hours probably right now. Mm. And I'm I'm pretty tired, so. Mm-hmm. But 
Um, and then, you know, you had the spectacle of, like, uh, a basketball guy. What's his name? Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman. Didn't, Dennis Rodman had an interview on, with I think it was Jake Tapper or somebody, and he was like, he had a Donald Trump uh, Make America Great Again hat, and he had, like, a pot coin mm-hmm. on or something, sponsored a strip or something, and he started yes. crying. Uh-huh. Like, well, you teed up the relevance of Dennis Rodman. We have him joining us on the show. He made his way to Singapore. There he is right now. Good to see you again, my friend. Dennis, can you hear me? How are you doing, guys? Good. Do you have a, what does your hat say? What's my hat say? Oh, good. Now I can see it. Let's so you make have America a make- great again. All right. You got it right there? You got it? I got it. Thank you. So you made your way to Singapore. How important yeah. is this to you? You talked a lot about the prospects for peace when we spoke several years ago. Did you think this moment would ever come? Well, in my heart and soul, when I first went to North Korea, I was very honored to even be uh, selected to go there. And uh, once I went to North Korea, I was um, didn't really understand what the old situation was as far as being over there. And uh, when I first met Kim Jong-un, I was um, more like, I didn't know what to expect. You know, I didn't know who he was. I didn't know what he represented. I didn't know if he was uh, someone important. But uh, I knew something was going on. But uh, once I got familiar with the uh, with the uh, with the culture and the situation over there, I got uh, really used to being there. I thought it was felt like I was at home. Now you know both men. You've spent time with the North Korean leader. You've spent time with Donald Trump. How do you think the two men size up in terms of how they might get along? Well, I think the fact that Donald Trump would uh, understand the fact that. North Korean, the people of North Korean have a, have, a, have a heart, they have soul, charisma, and they love each other. And I think the fact that uh, Kim Jong-un and his family understands that, I think that President Trump should understand the fact that the reason why uh, the marshal of North Korea uh, respects Dennis Rodman is the fact that he trusts me. And I gave him something for his birthday, and I thought I couldn't pull this off. And I said to him uh, on his birth, uh, the day before his birthday, I said, I'm going to give you a present. And he said, what is that? I said, well, I'm going to bring a basketball team, a uh, professional basketball team to you. He said, can you do that? I said, yes, I can. Even though I knew I couldn't do it, I said, if I fail now, it's going to be a problem. So basically, I got a lot of people together. I got popcorn here helping me out, my sponsor. Uh, thanks to those guys. And uh, it happened. And... Kim Young came to me and said, Dennis, you know what? This is the first time someone's ever, ever kept their word to me in my country. I, and I looked at him, I always got emotional. I said, wait a minute, hold on. He said, someone's never kept their word to you in your country? He said, yes, this is the first time ever, someone's ever suggested that. And I, I came through and I think that he really appreciated that, the fact that he's not normally hearing someone that's, that's trustworthy. And I think that country is normally hearing people that's always lying, deceitful, and not trustworthy. And I think that if Trump goes in there with a great heart, with his heart on, on, on the table, and let Kim Young see him, really emotional, as far as like speaking to him, it ain't got to be about war. It ain't got to be about hatred or what happened in the future or in the past. Or the past, I'm sorry, the past. We'll move on to the future. And I've told people about Kim Young, he's all about the 21st century. He's trying to progress his country. And Donald Trump is going to do a great job is try to reach out and make sure that our hands, Americans, our hands are always open because as Americans, we have let so many people around the world join us 
to be happy in one one country, that's the United States. And now we have really put ourselves on a line to reach out to North Korea, and they've been so gracious to me, my family, and the United States. So let's make this happen. If Trump could pull this off, more power to him. Dennis, did Kim reach out to you or any of his people reach out to you, the president's people, anybody reach out to you for insight into the other side? Well, you know what? I've talked to those guys the uh, last five years. Which guys? And uh, we talked to, I talked, I talked to Kim Jong-un and uh, an administration over there five years ago. And he asked me five years ago, we sat down for lunch. And he sat down and asked me, hey, Dennis, uh, I would like to ask you three things if you go back to tell the president of the United States these three things, and I would be willing to talk to him. And it's a true story, and I got my people here that was there that heard the conversation. He said um, things like, uh, if they can move the ships back from South Korea, I would do what I have to do to listen. If you can move certain things or do certain things, I will listen. My ears will be open. And I tried to do that to Obama. And Obama didn't even give me the time of day. I asked him, I said, I have something to say from North Korea. He just brushed me off. But that didn't deter me. I still kept going back. I kept going back. I kept going back. I showed my loyalty and my trustworthy to this country. And I said to everybody, I said, the door will open. I remember you amazing, saying it. I remember you saying it. Let me ask you it's something. Amazing. Does Kim it's understand amazing. English, Dennis? It's, 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 no, it was amazing. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. When I said those things, when I said those damn things, when I went back home, I got so many death threats. I got so many death threats when I was sitting there protecting everything. And I believed in North Korea. And when I went home, I couldn't even go home. I couldn't even go home. I had to hide out for 30 days. I couldn't even go home. But I kept my head up high, brother. I knew things were gonna change. I knew it, I, I was the only one. I never had no one to hear me. I didn't know one had to see me. But I took those bullets, I took all that. I took everything, everyone came at me and I'm still standing. And today is a great day for everybody. Singapore, Tokyo, China, everything. It's a great day. It is a great I'm day. Here to this see is it. a historic day. I'm so happy. You were saying to me years ago that you thought this would happen. Uh, and I want to let you uh, be ready for me to ask you another question. Uh, I know you're very emotional about yeah, this. Go ahead, go ahead. This is what yeah. I, I want to know. I want to know. Well, you're an emotional guy. You, you feel very deeply about things. People who have been around right. you understand that. Right. Why did you feel so strongly that you needed to make something happen for North Korea. There's so many places you could have gone in the world that have you know, a much easier path to peace than North Korea, given the record of human rights abuses and other practices of this despotic regime. But you chose North Korea, why? Well, you know, I, I feel like, like I said, I was very naive when I went over there. I didn't, I didn't understand and uh, expect all the things I was getting when I went over there. They said, do you realize what you was doing, Dennis, when you went over there? I said, no. I thought it was just another one of those, those, those things. I was just doing some uh, charity event. I knew nothing about North Korea. I just thought I was going to play basketball and just treat the people and be happy. And that was it. But it turned out to be so, so much more bigger than what I thought. And I felt the fact that, you know, just listen to the people, seeing the kids, seeing the people there, and just meeting the, the regime, Kim and you, and, and the whole marshals and everybody, I just felt like I just fell in love with the country from day one. And uh, I felt like that uh, 
I guess I owe it to myself, you know, and the people around the world, you know, but I'm not in here, I'm not in this for no money. I never started it for no money. This is not about Dennis Rob being the, the greatest person in the world to lead these two people together. It has nothing to do with that. I just wanted to see it get done so we all can live good together. Well, here's the no first hatred, day. No more hatred. Here's the first day. Let's see where it goes. Let me ask you something. You talk about speaking with Kim Jong-un. Does he understand or speak English? <laughs> One thing about him, though, I always say about him, he's, he's more like a big kid, uh, even though he's small. He's more like a big kid, but he, he loves to have a good time. And, um, and I was saying last night or this morning or this morning that he was going around taking selfies and stuff like that. And I was saying that this guy wants to be around the world. He wants to come to America. He wants to enjoy his life. He wants his people to enjoy his life. But he just, I think that the fact that he doesn't have the tools and maybe the, the fact that the, the, the politics of this whole meeting uh, is just going to happen. I think this is going to change a lot. And I hope the fact that President Trump can understand, knowing that Kim is trying to reach well, out that's and the trying big question, to get into the 21st century. That, that's the big question. I want to ask you about that in a second, but let me just get an answer to this. Do you think he speaks or understands English? Well, I think he understands bits and, bits and pieces. If you talk about basketball, yes, he understands that. <laughs> so you think it's about what he wants to talk about? Do you think he's studied English? I, I can say one thing. I think... People know that Kim Jong-un is not a dumb man. I think he's understanding from his grandfather and his father. I think that he's trying to protect his people. He's trying to protect his honor and, and, his, uh, and everything that has to do with his country. But uh, like I say, that's respect. That's respect. Nothing's going to happen overnight. It's going to take time. 100%. 100%. If Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump understand that, if they understand the fact that if we just sit there and have a smooth, a comfortable relationship, smile, laugh, joke a little bit, okay, great. It ain't got to be war. It's got to be something that everyone can be comfortable about. Right. And I know this media is going to be a great media. Well, that's the hope, Dennis. We'll see where it goes. It had a good start. They did the handshake. There was good body language. Uh, they said the right things. You know, it's all perfunctory at this part. It's at the opening ceremony. And we'll see what happens uh, when we start getting reports about the actual policy negotiations. But you talk about the Kim Jong-un yep. side and North Korea side. Did you hear from the White House at all today? Well, yes, I did. But, uh, and a good thing about it, yes, Donald Trump reached out. He called his secretary, and uh, she called me and said, Dennis, Donald Trump is so proud of you. He thanks you a lot. And that means a lot. You know, because after all these years, the fact that I uh, somewhat had something to do with this North Korean situation, but I don't want to take any credit with credit is due. I think we all need to take credit. And I'm just here, I'm just so thankful to be here. I'm glad the fact that this is happening. The world saw it, I saw it, my kids saw it. So you know what, it just, it's just hope for the best. We don't need a miracle. We don't need a miracle. We just need the doors to be open so we can start fresh and make this a better place in the world, baby. That's it. Well, look, sometimes it does take a miracle. I mean, you know, you're dealing with some really tough things on the table here. You know, I know that you've had good experiences with the leader of North Korea, and this is a nice moment. I'm not looking to get into right. it with you again, but you know now things you didn't know then. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of violence. Right. There's a lot of negativity, uh, and it all stems from your friend, the ruler of North Korea. You know, this man is in all selfies and smiles. He's responsible for the deaths and hardship right. of a lot of people. How can you be sure he wants something better 
than what he is right now. Well, as we know, Chris, uh, the fact that, you know, I'm not, I'm not a politician. You know, I'm not sitting there trying to fight the fact that, you know, I'm on his side 24-7. I'm not doing everything right to say the right things to make him look like a better man, a better person. I've never been like that. I've always been like down the middle. Here it is, you know, he's a good friend to me. That's what I look at. I don't see the politics of, of this whole situation. I don't want to see that. I want to see that to go away. I want us to see us get along, to have a handshake, to have a smile, have a, have a glass of iced tea. Just, just talk to each other friendly. I don't need to worry about the war stuff and all the stuff that's going on. I don't, I don't know anything about that. I just want to do one thing, bring sports to North Korea and try to bring, bring that, that connection with us to North Korea. That's it, sports. Everything else should be Donald Trump's hands and people in the White House hands. I'm out of it. I'm just so happy just to be here, man, and to see the, everyone in the world get emotional like I did, cry to see it really, really happen. And Donald Trump should take a lot of credit for this because he went out the box and made this happen. So anyway, so I want to say one more thing before I leave. Can I say one more thing? You can say whatever you want. Go ahead. Okay, so I, can I thank some people, though, while I'm here? Can I thank some people? Yeah, go ahead. But let me ask you something. Don't go on a whole uh, tour about it, but I want to ask you something else. But thank somebody if you want to thank them. Go ahead, Dennis. All right, so, you know, I just say thank you know, all the good people that's really st stood by me, Darren Prince, you know, Bo, the, all the guys that went with me in North Korea, you know, I'm thinking Chuck Daly, I'm thinking Phil Jackson, I'm thinking Jeannie Buss, I'm thinking, uh, you know, P.G. I'm thinking Eddie Vedder, the Pearl Jam, everybody that supported me with all through all these things. So, you know, I'm thinking my kids, they still with me after all these years, all the things I've done up and down, they still with me. All you right. know, I just want to thank everybody, man. And, and plus, you know what, I'm thinking these guys at Popcorn that supported me through this whole venture. I got you. I see, we see the shirt there. Goes, you got a good outfit. You got Trump on the top. You got popcorn on, on the bottom. Let me ask you one more thing. <laughs> you think there's any chance that you might have right. a role in this process? Has anybody reached out to you or given you reason to believe that whether it's the North Koreans or it's the Americans, that they may reach out to you as some type of resource here, something that is part of this mix going forward? Well, you know what, like I said, that's not my job. I, I wish that the fact that people would quit putting me in that title role, the fact that I, I should be in, involved with this whole politics stuff. I just want to be involved with the, with the sports aspect. And if, I can, if they can use me in that direction, maybe I can have some type of common sense to, uh, to sh shine some light on what's really going on in North Korea. If Trump want to come ask me about certain things, he'll probably figure it out today. And I hope he does. But if he want to ask me one-on-one, -on -one, I'm willing to do it. So, like I said, I know a lot of things, but uh, like I said, this is Trump and Kim Jong-un's day. This is the world's day. It's not my day. I just came here because I wanted to see face-to-face -face in my own eyes. So, thank you guys for having me on in the world. Thank you, guys. I'm going to do more important things down the road. Please. Well, Dennis. Step, step behind me. It's Be good. behind me. Dennis, it is good to see you. I'm glad you are well. I know that you're on your own journey. Stay healthy. Right. Stay happy. And right. we'll, please let us know what you find Watch out about you. this process. It's good to see you, Dennis Rodman, in Singapore. Thank you. All right, thank you, brother. All right. All right, brother. What the hell is going on? <laughs> you know, Donald Trump's like, I didn't wait for 25 hours, and Dennis Rodman's crying, and I'm like, and, you know, fucking the G6 is pissed at us, and, you know, Kim Jong-un is, like, basking in the glory and stuff. Uh -huh. Has the entire world, you know, gone crazy? I mean, what? What are we doing? Who, mm -hmm. Who's in charge here? Right. What, what, who, these people who are affecting pol foreign policy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. 
I, you know, I just, it's, it's interesting. We'll see. It may all end in, it may still all end end in tears here, but. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I have heard the analysis though, that, you know, this looks very bad, of course, and Trump isn't bringing up any of the human rights abuses. Obviously, he doesn't care one way or another about that. Um, you know, but at the same time, what is the other option besides, like, kind of flattery of the North Korean regime? I mean, nobody wants to go to war, and that would be disastrous. And there's no such thing as a bloody nose strategy or whatever they were talking about with hitting specific sites because they've got tons of mountains and secret sites, and, you know, they'll never get it all before they fire something off and that's not going to work and starving them out hasn't really worked thus far because China's not willing to cut everything off so where does that leave us I and mean, what else do we do besides you know somewhat legitimize or flatter them or in some way do some version of you know hopefully less embarrassing version of what's going on now but you know I, I think an argument could be made that ignoring the human rights aspect could actually help the human rights in the long run mm. because potentially with more um, you know with more security on the international stage they would feel less uh, domestic insecurity and they wouldn't feel the need perhaps to crack down on people for every little thing so much and they would also you know perhaps be enjoying the good press that they've been getting for, you know, appearing reasonable on the international stage, and they might want to increase that by improving their human rights. So, you know, in the long term, it's possible that providing more security than that to them could, you know, as a byproduct, improve human rights to some degree. But I don't know. Donald Trump mentioned human rights. Well, George Stephanopoulos pressed him on human rights, and he mentioned, oh, yeah, yeah, I think that's, you know, we, we talked about it a little bit. I brought it up or something, and actually, I can't remember what he said, but I think he said, like, in the future, something could be changing there. You, you mentioned that uh, you have raised extensively the issue of human rights with Chairman yes. Kim. I wonder what you would say to the group of people who have no ability whatsoever to uh, hear or to see this press conference, the 100,000 North Koreans kept in a network of gulags. Have you betrayed them by legitimizing the regime in Pyongyang? No, I think I've helped them because I think ch things will change. I think I've helped them. There's nothing I can say. Uh, all I can do is do what I can do. We have to stop the nuclearization. We have to do other things, and that's a very important thing. So at a certain point, hopefully, you'll be able to ask me a much more positive question or make a statement. But uh, not much I can do right now. At a certain point, I really believe he's going to uh, do things about it. I think they I think they are one of the great winners today, that large group of people that you're talking about. I think ultimately they are going to be one of the great winners as a group. Yes, sir, go ahead. Um, that's not exactly a guarantee. Mm -hmm. So, Well, none of this is a guarantee. I mean, you can bear it. You know, he, he constantly criticized the Iran deal. But, I mean, think about what that looked like. I mean, we had inspectors. There were checks. There were ways we could actually see. You know, you can argue back and forth, were they following it to the letter or not? But at least there was some mechanism to, like, ensure that this is going on. And their program was nowhere near what North Koreans is. And this is just, I read the 
whole statement that they signed or whatever. There's no specifics. There's no, I don't see any like timetable. I don't see any checks in place to make sure any of this is actually going to happen. It's just, like you said, a photo op and he wants to say he signed something. So they did. There you go. So it's like, what kind of deal is that? And what did, yeah. what did we get in return for this vague statement? Nothing. I, I don't see any, any benefit other than just not nuclear war. That's, I mean, that, of course that's a big benefit, but you know, it's like, what else did we get? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think like, and you know, I don't know if there's a video of this or not, but, um, I read on a CNN article, some quotes Trump had about how he, you know, is kind of coaxing this guy. Like, like I've seen their beaches in North Korea. The beaches are beautiful. I see them when they're launching their missiles and, you know, firing their anti-aircraft guns off the beaches and stuff. I think, wouldn't it be nice if there was a hotel there, like a classy hotel? And so he's like, I'm trying to sell them on this, that like, we'll build hotels there. They're going to get, you know, if they do the right thing, they could be rich. (laughs) Wow. You know, this, this is, if you can pull that quote, if you if if it's an audio quote, that would be probably amazing to drop. I only saw that saw that as a AP headline, but I, I I'm I sure know, there's I, audio I, somewhere. But I wish there's some audio of it or something. Because mm-hmm. it's it's an, I don't know. It would be fun to like read the actual quote in here because it was a ridiculous quote. They have great beaches. You see that whenever they're exploding their cannons into the ocean, right? So I said, boy, look at that beach. What wouldn't that make a great condo behind? And I explained, I said, you know, instead of doing that, you could have the best hotels in the world right there. Think of it from a real estate perspective. You have South Korea, you have China, and they own the land in the middle. How bad is that, right? It's great. It was bizarre. <laughs> like, we could build a Trump Tower right there on the beach where they were launching their missiles over Japan. I just, I watched the video and I thought, you know, prime real estate. It's like, that's where this guy's mind goes. That's your answer yeah. to everything, dude. <laughs> yeah. When your only when your only tool is a you know a real estate office, I guess, then every problem looks like a uh, I don't know. There's probably a witty way to finish this sentence, but I, it's escaping me right now. Yeah, I know what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, yeah, I mean, the past 24 or so hours have just been bizarre. Uh, you know, between yeah. him, Dennis Rodman. Um, we'll see what happens. I mean. I, you know, I'm I'm probably like one of the most critical people of Donald Trump that it could possibly exist. But you know, I'm I'm willing to admit that you know probably what we've been doing up until now has not been successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm not saying that means just try anything. And I'm not saying that Donald Trump has been prepared. Also, I thought it was hilarious that he said something like, "I had to," you know, a few like a few days ago, he said. Um, Oh, uh, they asked him, like, have you been preparing for the North Korea summit? He's like, no, I, I don't need to. I don't have to prepare. I'm just going to go in there. In a way, I've been preparing my whole life for it. Like, That's, come on. No, you haven't. Not specifically. What are you doing to prepare for the summit with North Korea? I think I'm very well prepared. I don't think I have to prepare very much. It's about uh, attitude. It's about uh, willingness to get things done. But I think I've been preparing for the summit for a long time as has the other side. I think they've been preparing for a long time also. So this isn't a question of preparation. It's a question of whether or not people want it to happen. And we'll know that very quickly. Like, this is not like a building inspector in Queens. This is like, it's a little more complicated. Yeah. Um, 
And and then, well, the, the funny thing is, then after saying that he was not preparing for the South Korea summit or the North Korea summit in Singapore or whatever, he he left the G7 early. You know, he left the environmental impact or whatever section after arriving late for the women's rights thing or something. Mm-hmm. He left early, and the excuse was, well, I have to prepare for for North Korea. It's like, okay, you haven't been doing your homework before. You you gloated about it, and now you're like, oh, I have to leave the G7 because I need to do this thing that I already said I don't need to do, and I'm already totally prepared already by my lifestyle. Yeah, right. it's it's just absolutely like, you know, I, I can imagine like Oliver Stone or somebody making a funny movie about this whole situation sometime in the future. Mm-hmm. But it's just it's hard to imagine an actor doing a legitimate job like a good enough job of capturing the just utter stupidity and sheer insanity of it all as it, as it plays out and unfolds in real time, you know? I almost feel like if Trump is still around, you could almost get him to play himself. <laughs> yeah, probably so. I mean, he probably won't take direction very well. No. <laughs> yeah, he'll probably insist on, I don't know, it would have to be a thing where you would, like, have him play, like, have people around him, like, doing some, like, mugging and stuff after he says something. Like, breaking the fourth wall, thing. like, just, like, on the office yeah. or whatever, like, just looking at the camera <laughs> yeah you're gonna have to let him play himself totally straight like a serious individual uh-huh. but then you're just gonna have to have other people's reactions be like the kind of the cue to the people like oh yeah this guy's ridiculous <laughs> and it'd be great because you let him just be as serious as he wanted to be which is uh-huh. his version of seriousness is um funny <laughs> i don't know it's not you know the, the, I mean, it's very clear that he wants to project an image of, you know, wealth and class and sophistication that he does not possess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you have to let him pretend that he does and, you know, just, you know, use context clues to cue the audience into what's really going on. So. Yeah, definitely. I don't know. It's, uh, yeah. Anyways, I don't know. It's uh, I, I should probably consume more media about what actually has been going on. No, I think you're pretty pretty caught up on, on what's happening. So, I mean, it's it's all anyone's talking about on social media right now, Twitter and that. So, <laughs> yeah, I think I think the only I mean the bigger da- the biggest danger short of nuclear war is that this will actually help the Republicans in the midterm right, election. Right. Exactly. Up. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. because let's be real, nothing has really been achieved here except, you know, a photo op, which is big in a way, but like, I don't know. I mean, if anything, he shouldn't even break even. He tore up the, he tore up the Iran deal. And then he, if he tries to make a deal with North Korea, I mean, at best he's broken even. You can't say he's like a foreign policy genius at this point because he did that. Well, and then it doesn't give much anyone hope that he'll stick to whatever terms are you know, to hammer it out because he's already, you know, turned away on this one, even though there's no evidence that I understand that they've been violating the agreement in Iran. So, if, you know, we're not going to honor that. What would we honor? We're not violating it. What, what's that? It's like, yes, but they were financing militias. It's like, that's not part of the nuclear deal, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> they have interests in the region. Uh-huh. So does Russia, motherfucker. Are you going to, are you going to stand up to Russia now, too? And no. by the way, why is Russia not here? Why is Russia not in the G7? Heard the G8. <laughs> yeah. it, it doesn't matter what you call it. It used to be the G8 because Russia was in it, and now Russia's not in it. Now, I love our country. I have been Russia's worst nightmare. 
if Hillary got in, I think Putin is probably going, man, I wish Hillary won because you see what I do. But with that being said, Russia should be in this meeting. Why are we having a meeting without Russia being in the meeting? And I would recommend, and it's up to them, but Russia should be in the meeting. It should be a part of it. You know, whether you like it or not, and it may not be politically correct, but we have a world to run. And in the G7, which used to be the G8, they threw Russia out. They should let Russia come back in because we should have Russia at the negotiating table. After I heard that, very I'm like, unfair. all right. Very the, unfair the, what Obama did to them. Yeah, absolutely. I was, after that, I was like, okay, does anyone seriously questioning the dossier at this point? Like, any part of it? Like, like does anyone doubt what we were talking about all those months ago? <laughs> yeah, they've, they've got almost no talking points on that except for he was a foreign national. He was financed by Hillary Clinton. Uh, <laughs> uh we don't have the P tape yet, so it's all false. Everything must be false. <laughs> well, that's the thing with blackmail, right? They won't release it if you do what they want. So, yeah. <laughs> as long as you do what they yeah, want. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Putin's probably so happy now, he's about to burn the tape himself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what could he realistically hope for that he hasn't already achieved? I mean, beefing with Canada, it's just like, how did we get here? <laughs> Yeah, I think, um, I don't know. Did we, did we talk last time about the, uh, the immigration stuff? I think we did, didn't we? Uh, what about it? Oh, just about, you know, the, uh, the senator who, or senator congressman, I, I forget who it was who visited the, uh, children's, uh, Containment center or whatever. Mm, no, I don't. I don't think you know, we did. I know who you're talking about, but I'm not sure we talked about it. No. People slash animal concentration camps mm-hmm. that were, you know, running in America now. Yeah, it's very upsetting. So. Yeah, and of course, you know, the Trump supporters will say, "No, Obama ran them too." And I'm like, "Oh, okay. So, so what do you want me to do about that then? Do you want me to say, okay, it's okay that Trump is running them now?" Uh, oh no! Oh, okay, were you complaining about them back when Obama had them? Mm-hmm. No. Okay, so you don't actually care. So <laughs> I'm going to keep complaining about what Trump's doing now because I'm aware of it. Yeah. If I wasn't aware, particularly of it during the Obama administration, right? Uh, well, I'm sorry. You know, it was. You know, it wasn't in the news or whatever. This is in the news now. Mm-hmm. Oh, the mainstream media. Oh, okay. Yeah. Whatever. So I should listen to your racist Breitbart. You know, it's just like I. The fact that we can encapsulate and summarize the Republican attack line on this, and they probably could not. I, I think it'd be fascinating to have a Trump supporter on and just see if they could, you know, give a good faith uh, summary of left wing positions on various things, and just see if they could. I mean, if they could suspend their, you know, sarcasticness long enough to actually like engage with the ideas and restate the ideas in some way, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I doubt that any of them would be capable of it. 
Yeah, right, absolutely. Well, I mean, what you're describing there is the tactic of whataboutism, which is just to mention something else whenever something you're doing or your side is doing is brought up. But my favorite part about that whole style of arguing is it, it totally like just gives over the fact that I'm not even going to try to defend what I'm doing. I'm not even going to engage with that. I'm just going to point to something else and be like, but, but there, what about, what about? And it's like, you know, you're, you're not actually saying that the charge that was originally leveled against you was even wrong. It's just saying mm. that something else is also bad. Like, it's like, what does that have to do with anything? We're not talking about it. And it's like, if you're going to say Obama did that, and what do you, okay, well, what have you been saying about Obama this whole time? And why are you comparing yourself to him if you think he's the worst? So. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, the thing about it is, I mean, I, I think when you're dealing with like whataboutisms or people using logical fallacies, you just really got to cut to the, the core of the issue is, um, okay, if we follow your advice, what will the result be? Mm-hmm. You know, what's the outcome? What's mm-hmm. the, what's the function? What's the function of your argument? And the function of your argument is, oh, we don't do anything and we just let Donald Trump keep, you know, breaking up families, losing 1500 or however many children in the system, you know, Placing uh, immigrant children in uh, foster care with people who can't speak Spanish, who you know, uh, you know, uh, placing some children with uh, child traffickers. Apparently, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, sending people back to places where they get killed, which I heard happened last week. Some teenager got yeah. killed back in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. It's just like, I mean, uh, sorry, no, I, I don't agree with that. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's like it has demonstrably horrible results. Mm-hmm. Um, so whatever you're, whatever you're trying to carry water for, uh, you better be very clear about what it is and why it's defensible because mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to be defensible. Right. And, you know, I'd not, you know, I'd, you know, what do people say whenever you compare something to the Nazis, you always lose the argument automatically. But it's sometimes no, the, no the parallel. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Godwin's Law or whatever. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, you know, this is this is straight out of the Nazis. Like, this is like what they did with the concentration camps, you know, telling people like, like apparently now they're telling people that they're taking their kids to get cleaned up at, you know, these detention centers. And it only dawns on them like hours later that they're not coming back. That's what they told the Jews in the camps, that they were just going to go take a shower and then guess what? You know what I mean? So it's like, this is like straight out of the Nazi playbook. We're talking about, you know, we got ICE people saying, I'm just following orders. You know who else said that? You know, it's like, I, I, I hate to keep making these comparisons, but it make it all too easy. You know, this is exactly what happened. Like, you know? Yeah. These, these people think as long as we don't, you know, kill six million Jews in ovens in 1940s Europe, <laughs> then we're not the Nazis. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I heard you say once about, like, never the, you know, catchphrase, never again for the Holocaust. It's like, yes, yeah. we will never again let the Jews in the 1940s be killed by Germany. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I think that, you know, people... It's one of those, like, kind of like one of these arguments that people make just as a reflex, right? Just kind of like free speech. Oh, free speech is good. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, have you critically examined that? Why do you think that's so? Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, uh, 
yeah, uh, never again let the Holocaust happen. But, oh, well, there's ethnic cleansing going on in certain countries in the world, you know, Myanmar or whatever, Burma. Uh, oh, well, you know, uh, that, you know, we're not the world's police. What can we do about it? You know, uh, like, I don't know. There, there's just these arguments that people make out of reflex, I think, that are not, you know, oh, you can't compare anything to the Nazis because the Nazis was uniquely evil. Yes, they were uniquely evil in some ways, and yet they're, if we can't learn any lessons from that, and if we can't uh, adapt what, you know, the circumstances that are universal versus the circumstances that were particular to that time and place, uh, you know, it's just, we just don't, it's, yeah, I don't know. Um <laughs> The, you know, I think we, we might have mentioned last time that, uh, I don't know, what, what was it? Like, I, I'm just saying, like, people are like, well, you know, he just wants to, you know, separate and ICE and all this stuff is just about catching the criminals. But by Republican definitions, every person who crosses the border illegally is a criminal by de facto. So right. every one of them should be caught. And <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and... And, you know, MS-13 is animals. They're animals. Um, okay, yes, yeah, some members of MS-13 have done horrible things, uh, like many gangs. Uh, and, but the fact is that, you know, ICE has arrested uh, American citizens for speaking Spanish in a, a few weeks ago, a case a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. It's like, so you're calling Latin American people animals who are in a gang. But then your government organization that's responsible for controlling these people or deporting them or jailing them mm-hmm. or capturing them or what, detecting them or whatever mm-hmm. doesn't distinguish between ordinary citizens of America who, are, who happen to be Hispanic versus gang members. Mm-hmm. And so this is where you get into the dangerous thing when you're calling people animals. Yep. And Dehumanize you know, the enemy. Have we not seen Starship Troopers? Did we learn nothing from that? <laughs> Yeah. The only good yeah, bug yeah. is a dead bug. <laughs> yeah, I want to know more. Yeah. Uh, so it's, yeah, it, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's frustrating. It's, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'd like to, and I'd like to hear, you know, the other side. I'd like to hear an intelligent member of the other side, you know, respond in some good way. Uh, well, I'd like to hear a Christian and, respond to this just because, you know, it's like, come on. You know, I know that you got your Supreme Court justice, but like, what else? What about everything else? Like, are you seriously ready to like throw everything on the fire and like just let it all burn just because you got Gorsuch? You know what I mean? Like, it's like, <sighs> yeah, it's, um, I don't know. Some people, some people might suggest that, well, I don't know, that, you know, people who are, what can we say, looking for a, you know, that believe that there is a supreme, you know, divine leader or something like this, that they're, you know, it's a fatherhood substitution metaphor or something. Mm. And so then when they get a political leader who they identify with and who, you know, pisses off the right people, um, I, all I, all I know is they can never, ever say again, anything about a character like Bill Clinton or somebody, you know? Oh, but they can. They uh, still, they still talk about Bill Clinton. He's on his book tour with James Patterson for the novel he wrote and they're, they're harassing him. <laughs> yeah. He had that. He had the me too dust up or whatever. Oh, yeah. On the today um, show. Yeah. 
Switching gears, as, as you know, there is a, a, a reckoning going on in this country surrounding the, uh, the Me Too movement. Uh, a few days ago, in response to, to critics who have suggested that you should have resigned in the, in the wake of the Lewinsky scandal, uh, you said that you should not have. If, if you were president now, in 2018, with, with everything that's, that's going on with the Me Too movement, how would you have approached the accusations differently? Or would you have? Well, I don't think it would be an issue because people would be using the facts instead of the imagined facts. In other words, to even make this case, you have to ignore some of the evident facts as some of the older women who've written about this and in a, a amazement saying, can you believe people are saying this guy was defending the Constitution? And of course he shouldn't have resigned. If the facts were the same today, I wouldn't. The... Uh, and I don't want to get into the facts. I'm not going to do anybody's work for them. They can go back and read it. But I also say, where is the media for the last 30 or 40 years? Everybody's known about the casting couch forever. Where, well, where, but this where, isn't, where, no, this but isn't where, just about the, the investigation. No, no, this you're, you're asking, well, don't we have a right to change the rules? Yes, but you don't have a right to change the facts. So a lot of the facts have been conveniently omitted to make the story work. I think partly because they're frustrated that they got all these serious allegations against the current occupant of the Oval Office and his voters don't seem to care, so you don't ever talk about that. There's been, I've, and it, I think that the answer is no, I think I did the right thing. I defended the Constitution. Unlike our president, the grounds, even if true, were insufficient grounds, as Newt Gingrich admitted to me. It was a political struggle, as it always is, and they wanted to abolish a fundamental principle of democracy, which is that we should all live under the same set of rules. You think this president's been given a pass with regards to the, the, the women who have come forward and accused him of sexual misconduct? Oh, well, I think that, uh, no. But it hadn't gotten anything like the coverage that you would expect with 19 people. Those poor 19 women have been lost. Because I think that they got, you have other things to cover, and I think people think that his constituents don't care, and... So you just keep going. It's what I, let me just let say it in another word. I loved what Starbucks did last week um, over civil rights, you know, closing down. The times, I, I like the Me Too movement. It's way overdue. I think that it doesn't mean I agree with everything. I still have some uh, questions about some of the decisions which have been made. But time's up. Yeah. is important, too, because they talk about how creating a culture in which there are no more victims. And so I was thinking, I wonder whether Starbucks is a good model for companies to deal with uh, trying to root out harassment, discrimination, unwanted approaches. Last question here. I, because one of the things that this, this Me Too era has done, it's forced a, a lot of women uh, to speak out, women who feel emboldened now. One of those women... Monica Lewinsky. She wrote in an op-ed um, that the Me Too movement changed her view of sexual harassment. Quote, he was my boss. He was the most powerful man on the planet. He was 27 years my senior with enough life experience to know better. He was at the time at the pinnacle of his career while I was in my first job uh, out of college. Looking back on what happened then through the lens of Me Too now, um, do, you, do you think differently or feel more responsibility? Um, no, I felt terrible then, and I came to grips with it. Did and, you ever apologize no, to and, her? 
No, yes, and nobody believes that I got out of that for free. I left the White House $16 million in debt. But you typically have ignored gaping facts in describing this, and I bet you don't even know them because, so I am not going there. This was litigated 20 years ago. Two-thirds of the American people sided with me. They were not insensitive to that. I had a sexual harassment policy when I was governor in the 80s. I had two women chiefs of staff when I was governor. Women were overrepresented in the attorney general's office in the 70s for their percentage in the bar. I've had nothing but women leaders in my office since I left. You are giving one side and omitting facts. Mr. President, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to present a side. I'm not, no, no, I'm, you asked me if I agreed. The answer is no, I don't. And I, well, I asked if you'd ever apologized, and you said you had. I have. You've apologized to her. I apologize to everybody in the world all along. But you didn't apologize to her, at least according to, to folks that we've talked to. There was never a, an apology. Made. I have not talked to her. Do you I, feel I like you owe it, her an apology? No, I do. I, I, I do not. I have never talked to her. But I did say publicly on more than one occasion that I was sorry. Okay. That's very different. The apology was public. And you don't think a private apology is owed? I think this thing has been, it's 20 years ago. Come on, let's talk about JFK. Let's talk about, you know, LBJ. Stop already. Okay. Yeah, that's also interesting. What? What part? Just this, what he just said. I don't think President, you think President Kennedy should have resigned? Do you believe President Johnson should have resigned? Uh, Someone should ask you these questions because of the way you formulate the questions. Mr. President, us. I was, again, Senator Gillibrand, she raised the issue. Others have raised the issue in this in, during the Me Too movement. I was just well, you're, you're you're here asking it now. Yeah, that's what. <clears throat> but when you filter the question back to me, there was a, gr a stunning article by a conservative woman who didn't even like me, in the uh, New York Daily News, which had more facts about what happened 20 years ago than anyone out there. And she said, you know, we should not cheapen victimhood. And so. You just draw your own conclusions. I dealt with it 20 years ago plus, and the American people, two-thirds of them, stayed with me. And I've tried to do a good job since then with my life and with my work. That's all I have okay. to say to you. Got it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Patterson. Okay. Mr. President. <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know. It's, um, I think, like... Bill Clinton, such a complicated person. And, you know, there's this kind of this left-wing revisionism going on where we're going back now and saying, oh, you know, he was a very problematic character. He may have raped some people. Um, it's like, okay, well, maybe. Um, I. The thing is, like, I don't know. It's, it's complicated. We've talked about Bill Clinton before. Mm -hmm. My difficulty with that is that it seems like every single one of the women who uh, had accusations against Bill Clinton of one sort or another fell in with 
hardcore right wing religious right. Oh yeah, no, I follow like almost all of them on Twitter because I followed them all after that thing before one of the debates where Steve Bannon gathered them all together, um, and they're yeah, what to to a person lining up behind Trump, and I just want to like I don't want to actually engage with them in any real way, but other than that, like I do want to ask them. It's like okay, yeah, okay, fine. You think these things about Bill Clinton? Trump admitted that he does this, and you still like lined up behind this guy, and it's like where do you not see the irony here of, of you making these accusations and, and still lining up behind this guy? Okay, have your accusations. That's fine, but what the heck are you doing? Like, <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's not even just Trump. I think even before, before Trump, I mean, they were with the whole, sure. you know, religious right stuff back in the 90s. Right, right. A lot of them but then at least like, you could say they had a leg to stand on as far as like, oh, we're looking down our noses at you because we're moral and you're not. But it's like you've lost that play, plane that you can look down on people on. Or at least, you know, it was always a fallacy, but now it's like totally laid bare. You know what I mean? I don't know. You know, people need to... I, I wish people could take themselves back into the 1990s mindset. I mean, the Cold War was over... Um, things were, you know, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Everything wasn't perfect. Some mm-hmm. bad decisions were made. Um, but I don't think that the Clinton years were this, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I don't understand it as well as some of the people who say that, you know, this kind of this, uh, centrist democratic triangulation stuff was, you know, such a bad thing. I mean, now it's looking pretty good, but, you know, <laughs> for the most part. I mean, not everything was perfect, but, you know, compared to what we have now. So. I, I think, like, the argument is that it just allowed the Republicans to go far the right wing. Uh, but I'm not sure that it was always entirely clear that that's what they would do if people met them halfway, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's I mean that is when the you know ninety four you know they had the big you know Newt Gingrich revolution. revolution. Yeah, um, that brought in the seeds for the Tea Party. I think from that point forward, and you know you could say that that was a, a straight reaction to that centrism or whatever of Bill Clinton that they went to the center and they just went more to the right and they've just continued to go to the right. So yeah, and now they control yeah. everything. So. <laughs> yeah, at some point, at some point in their history, possibly in the 80s, but definitely at least by the 90s, the Republican Party started to lose their mind. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, but there's not a you can't you can't start from that and work backwards. You have to say, well, you know, that 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 wasn't a given that that was necessarily going to happen. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I, I don't know. I'm sure we pissed off just about everybody <laughs> and the radical left already yeah. in this podcast. Sure, absolutely. Had, had we better talk about the wire? Sure, yeah. Let's let's go to that nice safe topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. All right. So season two. Now I have to admit, I've watched season two twice before. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now, I'm currently, I was only able to get three episodes in last night. No, that's okay. Um, I've gotten through episode three of season three, actually, but uh, I can actually... Jeez, Bob, slow down. <laughs> okay, I will. 
I, I, I got like nine more episodes to go in this season okay. just to just to catch up. But why, yeah. why don't we just keep our conversation to season two then, and then uh, we yeah, can fine. catch and up, you I know, should, next time. Yeah, I should I should be able to go very in depth on the first three episodes, and if you refresh my mind about you know things that happen in later parts mm-hmm. of the season, um, I'm sure I can go reasonably in depth on those two. Right. Well, I mean, we can still talk about the end of season two next time we talk too, and I'll yeah I'll I'll take a, a little bit of a break on that uh, for a bit well, to let you catch. I think I, I, I think I can talk reasonably intelligently about things that happen throughout mm-hmm. the season. And, okay. You know, you refresh my memory. Uh, rewatching the first three episodes, I, I forgot about certain scenes that had happened. And I was like, oh yeah, that did happen here. I thought that happened later or something, but mm-hmm. it happened here. So, yeah, don't worry about spoilers or anything. Okay. So yeah, season two. You mentioned that. Uh, you and other people were kind of thrown for a loop when this uh, kind of first happened because of the radical shift in focus. Um, do you still feel that way now upon rewatching? Are you still thrown for a loop, or do you know it's coming and it's it's okay? Or I'm pretty well okay with it. Um, I think like I think the thing the first time I watched it, um, I felt like they just abandoned. You know, I felt like in the first season. The criminal, you know, the Barksdale gang is just as compelling, if not more compelling, than the police department side of things. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when they totally abandon them and they, they're they on a new case and they've, you know, they've got these largely white, you know, uh, people working on the docks, the, uh, what do you call them, the Steve Doors? Steve Doors, yeah. Longshoremen or something, mm-hmm. yeah. Like, when you, when you shift to them, you're, you've got a whole new gang of uh, shady characters and criminals of one sort or another. And it, it just, I felt like, I felt like the shift away from the Barksdale people was too abrupt the first time. But the second time I watched it a couple of years ago, I did notice that actually the Barksdale stuff was still kind of going on in the background. They hadn't totally abandoned them. You know, Avon and uh, D'Angelo are adjusting to jail. Weebay's in jail. Um, and D'Angelo's mother is playing a bigger role. Uh, kind of right next to uh, Stringer Bell mm-hmm. in the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so so I, I noticed that that stuff was all still going on, but I just I think the first time I just didn't really appreciate that it got put so much on the back burner. I guess. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's like it makes. I mean, it made logical sense to me, you know, that that had to happen in certain ways because it's like you can't have that much like tension and, and that big of a blow up at the end of the first season without something changing. In, you know, the you know calculations people are making. You know, with um, Stringer Bell thinking about splitting up the territory with Proposition Joe. Um, you know, he's got this weak product from Atlanta that he's having to step on several times, and it's not really like as pure as he's used to and all the fiends know it and so they're going across the tracks and you know, he's kind of having to deal with Avon from jail and Avon wanting to hang on to everything because obviously he wants you know everything when he gets out to be the way it was and you know that's that's fine I mean that makes logical sense to me it, it, it did end up making for and I think I mentioned this to you I, I, I did end up making for kind of a letdown um, after that season one because the season one was so solid and so intense um, this was a little bit more you know I feel like it took its time with a lot of things it was a little more let you stew in it it wasn't quite as rip bang as as the first season was to me and you know it wasn't bad but it was like you know i I felt like it was a little bit of a letdown to me it wasn't bad just a little bit of a letdown i don't know i I feel like the first season if you 
the thing is you can only you can only watch the wire the first time once yeah right uh-huh. and I, I think the first season was a slow burn too i mean because you had a you had so much trouble getting into it at first and i think like i i think probably you didn't really click with it i, I think the point at which you started watching it you know, religiously was after Kima got shot, which was about, I think that was episode seven or something. Yeah, yeah. Or no, an episode, episode point, 10. Episode 10. Yeah, at that point, it kind of goes from a, like, kind of a slow burn to a, okay, police I, are serious about this and they're going to shut this gang down. I don't think so, there was ever that moment as, as like, yes, there was the part where, uh, what's his name, uh, gets, gets killed by the Greeks after that one guy makes the phone call and stuff. But for some reason, that just didn't feel as much of a rush to me. You know what I mean? Like, it kind of was like, oh, Frank, well, Frank Sabaka. Frank Sabaka, yeah, exactly. And that was a great scene, like you mentioned. But, um, you know, it, it just wasn't like, you know, it, it kind of, it, yes, it came crashing down, but it was more like it was a smaller house of cards that fell, I felt like, you know. Yeah. So. I don't know. I, I, I thought the, uh, the, 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 the saga of the Sabatka family was a, just a Shakespearean level of tragedy. Yo, it was very tragic. Yeah, definitely. A Greek tragedy. Mm-hmm. A Greek tragedy. Yeah. Unintended, perhaps. Yeah. But um <laughs> yeah, what I mean I don't know. Yeah, this 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 season was um yeah, it's a it's a very different season from most of the other seasons in a lot in a lot of ways. But um and 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 you know, in keeping with the wires way, we will see bits and pieces of some of these people again later in the future. I think. I, I think we'll see a little bit of them in later seasons, but not very much. But yeah, what did you think of the the downfall of the Sabatka uh, union? I mean, was he kind of like a? I mean, again, spoilers galore. If, mm-hmm. you, if you haven't watched the wire and you ever intend to. <laughs> It's too late for you to be this far in the episode. But, um, like, I mean, what? I mean, he was kind of like a, like a, almost like a Jimmy Hoffa character or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he was a kind of person that, like, he's a man out of his own time, and you know, he, he definitely would have operated much more successfully back in the in the quote unquote good old days. You know, he kind of felt like he was a person that had to do a little bad to do a little good. Um, you know, he would, you know, that scene where he gives the money to the guy who's thinking of leaving the union. Um, you know, obviously that's, that's dirty money that he gave him, but that guy was working at the union and he's trying to keep the union together and he's trying to give this guy, you know, this guy wasn't getting his days and he was trying to switch unions to feed his family, but now he's trying to help him out to keep him together. And he's trying to, you know, do these, uh, under the table political donations to, to try to get some kind of uh, headway on this project that would possibly, you know, make some for some job security, but at the same time, yeah, he's they, fighting uh, ro- automation and, and robotics and stuff, and you know the general shift of the world and the you police know, department. The police department, sure, yeah, absolutely. The after the, after yeah. the can with the dead girls showed up, and uh, you know, it's he's he's fighting a lot of forces, and you know, he's not a perfect person, and he obviously has done some very bad things, but at the same time, in his mind, he thinks it's justified because he's doing it for some sort of uh, greater good. There's a speech he gives i can't remember when it was it's later in the season but he talks about oh it was it was all for i think he this is a, he's talking to nick maybe or somebody he's like oh it was all for you it was it was all for work even when it wasn't for work it's like he even sees like the time when he's drinking with his you know uh 
fellow Steve Doors as part of his job and, you know, that camaraderie and he's, yeah. he's you know, all that stuff that's, is, that's is mixed in for him. Korea so. too. What's that? Yeah. I, I think that, yeah, the drinking as part of the mm-hmm. job is something you can see in Korea mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, definitely. So that's an idea that you know is multicultural in some ways, but yeah, yeah, I think he was a an amazing character, and and I've I've always seen him kind of like as I said I think before as kind of like the poor man's Tony Soprano. Yeah, yeah, I can what, see that. What do you think of that? I think Tony Soprano is a little more ruthless than he was. I felt like he he was a little more reluctantly drawn into the world of of smuggling as far as like you know just not asking too many questions about what was in the cans. Uh, I think when you know he his like you know the people that came before him uh, were coming up. I think it was more about oh this this can fell off the truck. Let's let's steal some electronics or let's steal this and that you know. But th- this was more like large scale. Don't ask any questions. Just get this out of here. You know, and and don't worry about if it's like human beings or drugs or what. So <laughs> and maybe that always was yeah. going on, but it seemed like he was a little out of his depth from what he was used to. So. Well, yeah, no, I, well, I didn't mean to compare him to Tony Soprano as far as ruthlessness. I don't think Frank Sabatka is a very ruthless guy. Uh, yeah, in a lot of ways, I think he's a he's a kind-hearted person at, at the core, but he's doing what he hopes to see as like kind of like victimless crimes more than. Yeah, but I, I'm just saying he's kind of like this this aging patriarch in a criminal organization. Um, who, yeah cares about his family to some degree doesn't you know care about them in the right ways hasn't raised his child the right way basically uh you know yeah i mean tony soprano had christopher who was kind of like a like a friend slash the son he never had who aj wasn't going to be and that that was kind of like who nick was in this one i think mm-hmm. um yeah i see some parallels I, yeah sure yeah, he, he, he's obviously you know He's not the smartest guy in the world. He's, you know, he's got some emotional issues, depression issues, or whatever. He's got a self-deprecating humor to some degree. He's like, I, I, I don't know. And there's a, and there's just a kind of a growing sense of tragedy as you go towards his inevitable conclusion. I think so. I, I you know, and he's 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 kind of an, another character. I think we couldn't have had before Tony Soprano, which is the kind of the. The fat, balding, ugly, kind of schlubby guy who you, you, you kind of grow to love this character anyways because he's just a great mm-hmm. character, I think. And, you know, he has depths, I would say. Mm-hmm. I, they, and they didn't have as much time with Frank Sabatka as they had with Tony Soprano to kind of uh, plumb those depths. But, uh, yeah, I, I thought he was a very good character and uh, very tragic. And, uh, you know, him and Nick... Uh, Ziggy, I agree. Ziggy bugs the fuck out of everybody, basically. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely meant and, to bug everyone because he's so, such a fail son. You know, he's just like he, he's like the like kind of like uh, AJ is, but he, like to the nth degree. You know what I mean? Like it's like if AJ had gotten involved in the mafia. You know? <laughs> yeah, AJ was ADHD and <laughs> spasticated and everything. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Like as soon as he purchased that duck, I knew it was all over for that duck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was. He he spiraled there towards the end. Oh yeah, absolutely. Finally. Well, I think one yeah. thing that the wire does 
Like, and I, I think this is one of the things that keeps you kind of on the edge of your seat is it lets you know that something very bad is going to happen, and it lets you see what the bad thing is going to happen, and it gives you some glimmer of hope that the bad thing might not happen, but not enough where you actually believe it, and you're just kind of waiting for the bad thing to happen, and then you're kind of rewarded with a payoff when you're like, oh, I figured out a bad thing was going to happen, um, where I really realized that was where, um, again, spoiler alert, but I, we've already said that, uh, where they have the big shootout on the corner between the two rival street gangs, and that mom is, you know, coming up to scold her kid to, you know, get down, uh, and, you know, don't, you know, while the shootout is happening, and then she's like, oh, get ready for school, and it's like, you know, you know he got hit, like, you know that kid got hit, and she's just going up the stairs, and, you know, it's that moment of tension where it's like, oh, I don't let this be true, I know it's true, but don't let it be true, oh, it's true, ah, I knew it, <laughs> and I felt like there, there's a lot of moments on that where, where, like, bad things happen to kind of, especially not, like, main characters characters, but like more side characters and stuff, um, where the show really rewards you for, you know, knowing kind of in a little bit of advance, like something bad is going to happen. So, yeah, well, I, I think, I think the thing about the wire is that, you know, better than like most TV shows is that, you know, characters, every character is on some sort of trajectory, mm. you know? Right. And, and sometimes they buck the trajectory and they, they have a surprising outcome, but usually they don't. Mm-hmm. And um, and certain characters like, like Bubs we've talked about before, had a, he, he just has a lot of luck compared to other people. Even though his life is really hard, he makes bad decisions and, you know, et cetera. But um, he, he's generally a lucky individual on the small scale, like on a day-to-day level. Um, on a long-term schedule scale, he's not a lucky person, but, mm-hmm. um, and, but I, I don't know. I'm just saying like, it's, it's not uh, the, the game, the, the show doesn't cheat you, right? They no, no, I, I appreciate that. That's why it feels so real because you can see, you know what I mean? It makes logical sense why yeah. things happen. So yeah. Ross Geller is not dating. Rachel, right? Like, I mean, that's 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 a completely unearned character arc that you know is kind of like, oh wow, what if the nerdy guy gets the hot chick? Wow, ooh, that's that's really oh my god. Also, Rachel was not affording that apartment, working part time at the uh, coffee place. So. Yeah, I mean, this, this show has an economic realism to it. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of shows, you know, a lot of shows take it for granted that uh, the main characters have their you know, they, oh God, I, oh, I hate my boss or, oh gosh, I, if I want to buy that thing, I need to save up. It's like, but they're, they're basic. They, they own a house. They, you know, this and that, this and that. They, they have their basic situation taken care of usually. So, mm-hmm. but I don't, so there's a, yeah, there's a socioeconomic reality. There's a, you know, a realistic, usually a realistic kind of like trajectory of what the characters, where they're going and what's going to happen with them and, you know, what the possibilities are. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, if it reads as kind of predictable sometimes, well, I don't know, it it might be worthwhile, I think, if you kind of just made predictions about the characters. It doesn't have to be specific, but if you just went through and said, like, for this character, do I think that there will be a positive outcome or a negative outcome? Mm -hmm. For this character, do I think there will be a positive? Just go through and just kind of, like, give a 
give a plus sign or a minus sign for everybody. Yeah. And by the end of the season, just see where they all wind up. Right, right. And well, I wasn't even saying that as a criticism necessarily, but it is. I, I do notice it is markedly different from how other shows operate because there's always that like what 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 and there's like that twist and you know there's always like keep and that that's how they think that you, they have to keep you on the edge of your seat because something unexpected has to happen in a certain way mm-hmm. that's good in the moment but it kind of cheapens the overall experience because at the end of it you're like well i was just twisted back and forth this whole thing and it didn't feel realistic to me because life isn't really like that you know there's of course some twists and some turns and, and it happens you know like that sometimes but it doesn't happen like that every single day you know so um you know but that that kind of adds to the i guess realism but also the the kind of high quality storytelling and everything that they are able to trust the audience enough that you know what's going to happen you're going to keep watching anyway because of how we're going to roll it out to you so yeah but i i think yeah i mean people's individual trajectories may be slightly more predictable than on regular tv shows or whatever Mm -hmm. but I, th- I still think they've got such a huge, you know, well of characters. They've got so many characters on this cast that it's and the, the characters interact with each other throughout the show in surprising ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you never know, like like when you wait, when when you know, for example, Omar meets Bunk or whatever, and he's like, "Weren't you you were mm-hmm. you were a year ahead of me or something?" And right. like, whoa, that is just that's crazy because these guys came from the same place. They wound up on opposite sides of the wall, mm-hmm. and they're both fascinating characters in their own right, and just, wow, they met each other. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean they're going to be best friends in the future, or they're going to, you know, get a beer together or anything. Yeah. It's just like, it's just a moment, right? I, yeah, well, since you brought up Omar, I have to just mention, probably my favorite scene, maybe in the history of television, uh, Omar in court. Yeah. OMG, yeah, that, that was amazing. Yeah. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think I told you something about like, uh-huh. Omar's going to have his day in court. Yep. He said, he said something like, "How did the how did the police like know he's out there doing these murders and they're not like throwing him in jail?" I'm like, "Don't worry, Omar's going to go to court and you're going to see the role he plays." And he's, you know, I, I don't know what I said, but yeah. I didn't spoil anything. I don't think, but I no. think get his day in court. Yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, something with a tie, right? <laughs> I love it. I love how uh, McNulty's in the store with him, and he holds up that yellow suit, and he's like, it's a look, and Omer's like, no, it ain't. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, they're like, so what is your occupation, Mr. Omar, and hi, Rob's drug dealer? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think there's two schools of thought on that, and one school of thought is that undermines his credibility as a witness. On the other hand, it strongly bolsters it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that was the thing that tore the case down is when Levy tried to get on his high horse, and he was like, "So you just are are benefiting from the misery of this city?" And he's like, "Just like you, like like how are we different? You have a briefcase, I have a gun. This is the same thing. Like we're just doing two different parts of the same job." So. Yeah. I, in a way, that 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 part felt a little bit over the top to me, but it's 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 a zinger. And, oh, you know, yeah, so good! You see it, it, it's like whoa, <laughs> he went there. Oh yeah, but, um, yeah. That, but the scene of him on the stand is like um, I, he said something like a. Uh, 
Bird had that gun or something. He, he Bird does covet those shiny things or something. He, I forget what he says exactly, but he's like he's trifling or something. <laughs> like, wow, it's like he's he's going all out in the courtroom. There, it was wild. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I'm I'm worried about uh, Omar though. I don't think he's long for this world. Oh <laughs> uh, well. Mark it down in your predictions. We'll see where. All right, all right. <laughs> I guess you know how it turns out, but I don't know. Well, what, either him or Stringer's got to go. You know, I maybe we're getting too much into season three at this point, but uh, the beef he had with uh, Brother Mazone was uh, pretty interesting. I'm sure that will come back. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well. To be continued. I, I guess. I don't want to spoil anything. Yeah. But yeah. Those. Those three people. There's kind of a, a triumvirate, like not they're not working together necessarily. No, no. Three of them. Well, they never really were because wasn't it Omar uh, Avon that hired Brother Mazone to come in and be the muscle while everything was going on? Yeah. Well, I I I I, I want to be very careful what I say right now because if I I don't know. It's okay. We can we can leave, we can leave that for next time. We'll leave it for season three. But yeah, but yeah, yeah. Those three, but yeah, Brother Mazone, uh, Stringer Bell, and Omar. Mm. Uh, that's a those three have a have an arc. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's a uh, yeah. Yeah, they're definitely heading. They're butting heads. They're heading towards something. Mm-hmm. So. But yeah, Avon. Yeah, Avon's in jail right now where I'm at. Although uh, I just watched the the Hot Shots. I think uh, episode three is called Hot Shots. I think, which is where mm-hmm. um, Weebay complains about the the uh, <laughs> prison guard who's cracking down on him because this guy mm-hmm. killed his cousin or something like that yeah. mm-hmm. on the street before he admitted to it at least, and he probably did it. Um, and you know, Weebay is going to Avon and saying, "Look, I can't do this, right? You got to take care of this." And Avon talks to Stringer, and Stringer has some people tail this guy to Butchie, um, the blind uh, bar owner slash drug dealer. Yeah, um, how does that guy get along? Like, since he's blind, I mean, how does he? I mean, I guess he's got people around him to only count money, and but I don't know why do they need him then if he's relying on everyone else. I think I think he's I think he's kind of an he's an OG in right. that neighborhood. I think he's I think he's on the east side. I want to or the I think he's on the east side. I believe. Huh. I think he's under Prop Joe, maybe, but um, I could be misremembering that. But but he continues to play a role later in later mm-hmm. seasons too. And yeah, I mean, has, I guess he's you know, like known by everyone because obviously he's talking to Omar, he's talking to Proposition Joe, he's talking to Stringer. So, yeah, and and yet you know he's, you know, you would think. I mean, he has a certain amount of respect, I think, in the neighborhood there. But at the same time, we see that he's willing to sell out somebody who is working with him. This, you know, this uh, prison guard has been, you know, good with the money, brings back the right amount every time has been working with them obviously for a little while and yet he sells them out to Stringer and uh, Avon and uh so you know he's a he's a pragmatic guy who you know is cold-blooded too but mm-hmm. he seems to have kind of a he, he seems like a nicer guy than a lot of people and he seems to have a certain amount of respect and stuff so mm-hmm. but yeah so that that was a wild scene and you know he and Avon approaches uh D'Angelo in the library 
and mm. says to him, you know, look, he's like, you seem like you're a little dusted. You seem like you, he's basically saying, you seem like you're using drugs right now. And he's like, yeah, I'm just trying to get by. And he's like, yeah, but you don't need it though. Do you? And he's like, no, I don't need it. I can quit whenever I want. And mm-hmm. he's like, well, so you could take a few days off then, couldn't you? And he's like, yeah, I could do that. And he's like, well, well, you're going to do that then. Right. And he's like, yeah, I'll do that. Okay. And I was kind of freaked out. Like once you see that he's, he's poisoned the drugs and people are dying and mm-hmm. stuff in the cells, you're like, wow. I mean, I'm surprised he didn't tell D'Angelo exactly what was going to happen or something. Although D'Angelo probably would have warned his friends. So I guess, I, I guess I'm not surprised, but hmm. I'm just saying, I, I think, you know, telling a drug addict, you, you can, you're going to hold off for a few days, right? <laughs> when you're their uncle is like, yeah, yeah, oh, sure. I'll, 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 I'll hold off for you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course. Oh God. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so high tonight. <laughs> I do not need to be dealing with this conversation. right Yeah, now. exactly. <laughs> this is like, it's like thinking in the back of his mind. This is all the more reason why I'm going to get high. <laughs> I get this conversation right here. <laughs> Man, my uncle's stressing me out. I'm in jail. (laughs) My uncle slash drug gang lord boss is telling me not to do drugs. Yeah, Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, you're you're right. That is interesting that he wasn't a little more forceful about it. But, I mean, in the end, like, doesn't he kind of know what happens even without not actually knowing? I mean, when when that all actually plays out with D... Okay. Well, you. I mean, you can say what happens. I haven't watched it yet, but I know what's coming. All right. Well, he hangs himself, supposedly, but what really happens is that Stringer Bell has paid some guy from Washington, D.C. to have another prisoner go into a closet in the prison library and strangle the guy and uh, make it look like he, like, tied his neck to a door handle and sat down with his hands in his pockets and make it look like he was like hanging himself. But really what happened, of course, is that he was murdered um, on orders from Stringer Bell. After Stringer Bell what, didn't, they figured out that D'Angelo wasn't going to go along with Avon's plan to get out early by snitching on the guard that was bringing the drugs in. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, but why was that such, I, I still don't understand why that was such a big deal because it's like, he didn't seem like he was going to like go and turn on them necessarily it's just like i'm gonna do the rest of this time the way i want to and you know what i mean like but you just feel him slipping through his grasp in general and that's why he had him killed well i i I think again i think you know stringer bell is a consummate businessman Mm -hmm. and you know d'angelo's doing 20 years in jail he's not going to be in the gang anymore um, at any point in the next 20 years, he could change his mind to say, you know what? Um, you know, I know these people, I know what they did. I can turn on them and get myself out or whatever. I mean, it, it, it is, I think for the TV show, it's tragic and it's dramatic that it seems like he's not going to play ball with them anymore, but at the same time, he's not going to roll on them. He's going to do his time honorably. Right. Mm-hmm. But I, I, we see that as the audience. I don't think Stringer could necessarily see that. Um, maybe Avon could see that. Um, hmm. but, but just the I, fact I, that I, he's I, like not like going along kind of shows the cracks in the armor that will eventually spill out in the future. Like even if it's not happening now, maybe he'll he'll turn on them. You know, down the line. Yeah. What did you think about? Um, 
the Great Gatsby, the book club in the library that D'Angelo was a part of. Yeah, I mean, I almost felt like I knew something bad was going to happen when he made this eloquent speech about the end of the Great Gatsby and whatever, about how he, you know, was living a fraudulent life because he wasn't dealing with his past. And, you know, I, I think that I knew, kind of knew he was not long for this world after that. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, this, this time, something that I noticed about that is the similarities, I guess, to, to Jay Gatsby, hmm. to D'Angelo Barksdale. Hmm. And the scene that did it for me was the scene where D'Angelo and his, his baby mama go to the, the fancy restaurant in the first season, right? Mm-hmm. And they feel totally out of place. He's like, somebody's taking his coat. He doesn't want them to take his coat. Like, they're bringing the dessert tray by. He just tries to take a dessert. And like, no, these are just examples. He's mm-hmm. like, he asks her, like, do you think these people know what we do? And she's like, it doesn't matter what we do. Your money's good, right? Like they'll mm-hmm. take your money. That's it. You, if you've got the money, you can be whatever you say you are. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the that's Jay Gatsby, right? I mean, like, you know, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I, I mean, somebody, I didn't realize that at the time because that's like foreshadowing or whatever. But yeah, so. yeah. I mean, again, that's that's why this show bears like repeat viewings because like that's not something that I noticed the first two times. But it's like, oh yeah, that scene. That's like that's something that where he was, you know, somebody who had come into money, didn't come from money. And was trying to build a, uh, a facade of respectability and stuff that um, that ultimately at the end he couldn't really escape his past, just like Jay Gatsby and stuff. And mm-hmm. so that was, you know, uh, again, that, that's where this show just operates on so many levels. It's just like, it's mm-hmm. just, uh, it's a smart show. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So... So how did you feel when D'Angelo died, though? I mean, like, this is a character from the beginning, you know. I mean, he he, originally we said that, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Wallace. uh, Wallace was kind of like the the moral center of the the drug gate crew gang Mm -hmm. and stuff. And and I think he was, but I think also, like, I mean, kind of like uh, D'Angelo was kind of like the same thing 10 years later, you know, a little bit deeper into the game. Yeah. Committed some murders, had done some bad things, but was still basically like a guy who was kind of a blank slate, kind of like didn't like cruelty for cruelty's sake, didn't want to hurt anybody necessarily. Yeah. I don't know. I felt like and, after Wallace died, I, I kind of have the thousand yard stare now. It's, it was, I was a little numb after, after Wallace died. So I was like, okay, well, this is very sad, but I've already been saddened as much as I can be sad in the show. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, it, it made sense. I mean, he was, he was out of his depth again, you know, he was, he, but again, he was kind of caught by the fact that he's, you know, he's in this family, he's in this gang, he's in this for life, and he can't really leave it, and, you know, he's trying to leave it, but it's too little, too late, you know, he tried to get that deal, I know, I think when he didn't get the deal on the way, you know, when he wanted to, like, start a new life and not be a part of this and enroll on everybody, and his mom came in and, and advised him otherwise, um, you know, that was the moment I kind of knew that it was over for him, because he already shown that he wasn't all in, you know, and at that point. Even though his mom came and and convinced him otherwise, I knew eventually it would still go the other way for him because you know he was not he's not Weebay you know he's not he's not Avon he's not these people that are lifers in this thing good or bad up and down inside jail outside jail you know it doesn't matter to them they're always I I don't I don't look for them and maybe this will change but I, I don't look for them to change no matter what happens to them but I knew that once he had made that 
you know, where's Wallace? Where's Wallace? You know, all that, that, that was the moment I was like, okay, you know, he's, he's going to get God eventually. Cause this is not, this can't stand, you know, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. He's well, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it, it is. It is interesting to see people like, you know, I mean, the I mean, I think D'Angelo uh, uh, Avon had said in the first season he's never been in jail and he doesn't want to go to jail. But now that he's in jail, he seems totally just in his element. He's totally comfortable. His his needs are taken care of. He's you know got the guards doing favors for him. He's got everybody else you know respecting him and stuff. And and to him, it just seems like it's almost not even that different from life on the street. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, and and yeah, he's not going to. I mean, he's he's the top dog. There's nobody he could turn on, really, except for possibly Stringer in some sort of a, like a reverse kind of roll-down thing or something. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, like he and Weebay are there. Uh, Weebay, I, I don't know. Weebay, I don't know if Weebay, Weebay could, you know, lawyers, lawyers make deal with some bad people sometimes, but I think Weebay has done enough bad stuff that they would have a hard time giving him anything less than life in prison, no matter what he did. I think he's lucky like he didn't get the death penalty. I think that was a victory for him. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that they continue to be fascinating, but, hmm. um, but, but again, we're, we're kind of going back to them, which, and that's, it's an important story. And it's a story that will continue. But, uh, again, we're in season two. So, um, what did you think of the Greeks? Uh, on the Patapsco side. Yeah, that. yeah, that was interesting. I wasn't actually even mad at the end of the season when they got away. I almost wanted him to, you know, I, like I was interested that in, you know, 2000 whatever, you could still be a person that could just disappear into the ether, you know, that, you know, that, that was always my thing about the movie Catch Me If You Can, and I was always kind of saddened by it because I was always like, okay, in the 70s you could pull this off, but today there's no way. And so I was kind of like, yeah, okay, even these guys are terrible. They're obviously sociopathic criminals that have done horrible things and and prostituted people and killed people and trafficked all sorts of horrible things but at the same time it's like it, it is heartening to think that you know in in this day and age of technology and and you know everything being tracked that you could just disappear into the ether if times got really tough you know so i don't know that I, that I wasn't the most horrible thing i've ever seen <laughs> I think that's the American dream. Right, exactly. The American dream is that you could commit a crime and plausibly get past it and yeah. never be found out about yeah, it. Yeah, right? just start a new that's life that. somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's the American dream to some degree. But yeah. What, what is, I, I, I've always been confused and fascinated by the line at the end where they said, you know, we're not even Greek. They can't find us. We're not even Greeks, <laughs> right? It's mm-hmm. like, what the hell? Are, are they Russians? What the hell are they then? Oh, they're probably they're like Greek. Latvian or some some like next door country or something. They probably just told everyone they were Greek to, or maybe everyone just assumed they were Greek. So they're like, eh, whatever. Yeah, fine, we're Greek. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah. And well, I well, I mean, they spoke Greek. They were speaking. No, Greek, that's right? true. That's true. And and the thing that confused me about that too was that the, okay the guy who had opened the container on the boat that let the women out where one woman got killed and then they mm-hmm. had to decide to put all the other women back in and killed them all anyways when they caught that guy when he tried to jump the boat in like Philadelphia or something uh-huh. and they were torturing him and stuff and they were about to kill him they like he had Turkish tattoos he was a Turkish guy mm-hmm. and Turks and Greeks fucking hate each other from way back yep. 
And this guy said, don't even worry about it. I'm, I'm not even, this is the new world. I'm not even considering the old world. So I'm not considering that I'm a Greek and you're a church. So don't even, I'm not, I give you my word. I'm not going to hurt you and stuff. I'm like, I was like, but then he killed him. He's like, he's this fucking Turk or something. I was like, mm-hmm. okay. So when he comes back later and he says, I'm not even Greek, I'm thinking like, okay, so why was there all well, that? All right. I'm looking up on the uh, Wikipedia page now. It's saying that he okay. stated he is not actually Greek, although this could be a reference to his nationality, not his ethnicity. So it's possible that he was in a Greek community, not in Greece. You know, you see what I'm saying? Like he could have been like in a Greek town in some neighboring area or something. It's not that he's like actually like some a, a national of Greece, but he is maybe. You know what I'm saying? Like. He could still be ethnically Greek and just not like a Greek citizen or something. Okay. I don't know. Yeah, I, I thought it was a really confusing. I, I thought it was, yeah, I, th- I thought that was just a very confusing line. Right, because they give all these other clues throughout the thing that he actually is Greek, so. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that was, that was interesting and stuff. Um, yeah, what, I mean, what do we think about the uh, his right hand man guy? I forget the guy's name. The guy who always wear those like the newsboy hats. Oh yeah, good, good hat, good hat. <laughs> like, uh, like was he, like he was gay or something? And he was sort of interested in Nikki or whatever. Oh, he was something going on. There. I missed that part. Wasn't he? Maybe. I, I thought there was some subtext there. Well, you might be right. Like, I don't know. Huh. Yeah, I missed I, that. I, I have to. I'll, I'll, I'll keep going. I'll keep watching this thing. But, uh, yeah, I thought there was some sort of a homoerotic uh, tension between him mm. and Nick. Not on Nick's part, but right. on his part, definitely. Huh. He definitely had a soft spot for Nick sure. compared to, you know, Ziggy and Frank Sabatka himself. So. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was, yeah what, did you, what did you think about the relationship between Nick and his uh, his baby's mama? Oh, it was interesting. Yeah, I kind of, I mean, I felt bad for him because obviously that they were trying to like start a life and that wasn't possible on the Steve Dorr salary working a straight job. So he felt like he had to do what he had to do um, to get the money. I did think it was funny at the end where they're in the witness protection and they go into the crappy hotel and she's like, this is a dump. And he's like, well, you said you wanted to get a place, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it was a uh, yeah. That was that that whole story was just yeah. It was wild. Yeah, but I mean, I do think I I see what you're saying about how the Sabatkas in general are kind of there's a lot of larger issues in American life that they're kind of standing in for uh, automation, union busting, you know, income inequality, uh, you know, the housing crisis, you know, we, we got uh, you know all those things mixed into their life story because you know they're basically you could work as a Steve door, even working a couple of days a week and, and actually make a life for yourself back in the day. But that is just not possible anymore. So, yeah. Yeah. That, it's a, it's a, you know, every season of this show is about big ideas mm-hmm. and like, you know, and everyone has some overarching theme and that those things seem to be some of the themes of this season. And, um, and part of me was outraged when it ended. I wanted it to keep going. Right. But on the other hand, I was like, well, you know what? Maybe he came in. He said what he had to say, and any any kind of future seasons beyond these five would have been super superfluous, right? Right. Pronouncing that right. Mm-hmm. And 
so so I think I respect that you know that he you know each each season had some theme and yeah you could keep beating back on it you could keep going back to the characters kind of for sentimentality's sake but he had basically had said what he had to say philosophically so right right I, I do respect that about the show well, I, I mean think, yes yeah do. right and the Sopranos may be my favorite show of all time but I think I've said this before I mean in six seasons like six and even five I don't know the later seasons kind of felt like you know just like a victory lap in certain ways and they were just trying to yeah. you know spin their wheels a little bit and and I, I believe me I enjoyed them spinning their wheels because who doesn't want to spend more time with Christopher and Adriana and all them but at the same time it's like you know we I think we've covered the main conflicts of the show and seeing uh, AJ and his uh, Latin girlfriend get a place in the bad part of town isn't really adding too much to the story for me uh, overall even though it's fun to watch so but yeah I, I didn't dislike that subplot but I, I oh no I didn't either but it wasn't like I don't think it was like the original idea of the show played out you know <laughs> so yeah I, the, the part where it kind of jumped the shark for me and I think we've talked about it before was the part where after he kills Christopher mm-hmm. when he goes out to Las Vegas and yeah. he shacks up with Christopher's old girlfriend and yeah. has sex with her and does peyote and stuff mm-hmm. and he's like I understand mm-hmm. I'm like no this mm-hmm. is not Tony Soprano this yeah. is out of character this is you know I don't buy it yeah the know? mother's the bus we I, keep I trying to get back on the bus all that kind of stuff <laughs> mm. <laughs> well that was like the vision yeah, he know. had on peyote was that mother's like a bus that we get off and then we're always trying to get back on the bus or something so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I forget I remember that line I don't remember who was talking to but yeah uh, Melfi. That, that, that scene and that that you know and just the self-indulgence of it I thought yeah. too he's like I, it, it felt very self-indulgent. Oh, Why sure. is he in Las Vegas? Oh, well, I had to wrap up some of Christopher's old business in Las Vegas. <laughs> what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> you know, that we, we've almost never, we, we never met this woman before that I can remember. We never saw Christopher really in Las Vegas. We saw him in Hollywood a couple times. It's like, uh-huh. what, you know, I don't know. It just, it, it's like, oh, absolutely. it didn't bother explaining exactly what it meant. I mean. Yeah, I definitely go back and watch the first few seasons way more than I go back and watch the last few. So, I don't think I could start watching and stop watching. I think if I started watching The Sopranos, I have to go all the way through. I don't know. I've because seen that show so many times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if anything, I would probably skip the first season because I feel oh, like sure. the first season was not totally solid. I mean, they 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 nailed down the acting and the characterization a little bit better in some of the later seasons. Hmm. I think so. But, um, but yeah, yeah. But anyways, yeah. So the, yeah. So anyways, yeah, there are definitely some big themes. Again, this, this is a thinking show. It's a smart show. So at this point, after watching season two and starting season three, what do you, what do you, how do you think it stacks up against the Sopranos? How do you think it stacks up against Breaking Bad slash any other, you know, mm-hmm. uh, premium television or whatever, whatever the, you know, yeah. whatever the terminology is. I mean, how do you think it stacks up against other shows now? Uh, I still don't have a lot of fun most of the time watching The Wire. That's maybe my biggest criticism for it. Um, it just feels like, you know, like, like there was a couple scenes, like, like that scene with, uh, uh, McNulty after his wife 
tells him that they're not going to get back together. Um, and then he like crashes his car and then he has sex with the waitress. That, that was a good scene. Like I recognized the quality of it, the artistry of, of showing him spinning out and you know, like the, the way it was filmed was good. And, and I thought it effectively communicated what it was going to say, but like, I don't want to, you know, that I didn't feel good after watching that. I'm just like, man, this, this is a father and a policeman and he's doing this. Like, like this is not good. Like this is not, this is like, maybe this is actually what happens in real life and maybe it makes sense for the character, but man, this is like, this is hard to watch. Uh, maybe it'll get easier once I'm a little more numbed out from watching the entire series, but I don't know. I, I it's not as rip roaring fun as some of my other favorite shows like the Sopranos are, you know, like I think we talked about before, it's a little more cartoony and a little more removed from reality. Um, only because it has that kind of remove. I don't know. It just, it doesn't feel as quite as visceral for some reason as, as the wire does. And the wire is like very like, man, every moment is like dripping with meaning and, and we're, we're supposed to like get the larger themes and think back and, I, I don't know, like, in, in certain scenes are, like, amazing. Like, I want to go back and watch certain scenes, but, like, I'm not super jazzed to, like, watch the entire series again, I guess. I'm, I, I want to go see, like, certain scenes, like, over and over again. I want to live in the scene with Omar in the court, you know what I mean? But, like, yeah, as far as, like, the larger thing, it's like, oh, I don't know. This is hard to watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. I don't know, yeah, I just, I, I guess I even though the subject matter is, you know, dark and dour and not very optimistic most of the time, I guess just the, the enjoyment of the aesthetic, the craftsmanship, the dialogue. Um, yeah, the dialogue you know, is amazing. Think, I'll give you that. That is one of the highlights of the I'm, show. I'm appreciating it on all those levels, and so I'm not so wrapped up in am I having a good time right now necessarily or something. Yeah. I mean, I'm having a good time for different reasons, I guess. Oh, sure. Well, and Baltimore is just not a pretty place to look at, you know what I mean? And that's the other thing. It's like, you usually like Lost and stuff. Like, Lost had its problems, many, many problems. But like, you, the one thing you could say for Lost, it was like on a tropical island, you know what I mean? Or, or Mad Men. I think Mad Men went completely off the rails if we're talking about other prestige TV shows. But Mad Men was fun to look at. They they got that aesthetic just right, and it was like this like kind of dream fantasy time machine world that you could step into, and and just it just you didn't marvel in the beauty of it. You know, Baltimore is not a pretty place, and that is not what it looks. You know, that probably is what it looks like, but you know what I mean. Like it's kind of hard on the eyes. So I don't know. It's a I think it's a, a love and a hate letter to Baltimore, the whole series. Yeah, and definitely. So, but I mean, I think, you know, with Sopranos too, I mean, New Jersey is sure. a vacation spot most of the time, you know, Jersey Shore. Yeah. So. But they at least had some I trees, know. I guess, in Jersey. <laughs> I think they, they captured, you know, the thing is though, that, I mean, with Lost, I mean, they filmed it in Hawaii. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to. I tried to go back and rewatch Lost, and you know, ten years after I first watched it, and I couldn't watch it because the first season was like twenty five episodes, mm-hmm. and it was one of these shows where it's like, oh, this guy's a bad guy, but now they have to work with him because he's the only one who could do this thing for them, and mm-hmm. you know, and oh, now these guys are working together, and you know, it's just like every possible permutation. If these guys didn't like each other before, but now mm-hmm. in this special episode, they have to get together. Yeah, and it was just you know 
it, it's stupid. It's right. Stupid. But that's one of those shows I was talking about with like the twists and the turns, but it just feels like empty at the end. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. They didn't. I mean, what was, it's not a, you know, yeah, it, it seems like it feels like you're watching something deep and like, Ooh, what is the oh, monster? What the is smoke monsters. Really what is that? that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. That's really cool. <laughs> uh, but, but it's like, you watch something like this and you just can't go back to something like that. Yeah. Too. Right. No doubt. <clears throat> and, and, but the thing, the thing is like Baltimore is a real place yeah. and they're treating it like a real place. Sure. And they're teaching you, you know, I mean, I've never been there, but I feel like I've been there sure. because of the show, which is, you know, not entirely correct. I mean, I'm sure, you know, a person who's lived there would say, well, you know, some parts of it are great, but you know, it's not really like that all the time or this or that or something. And there's different whatever, but, and, but it's, it's showing us this city, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's the, the city's a character basically. Yeah. It's a and, rotting and, post-industrial hellscape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but not without his charm. <laughs> so, true. True. There are some characters in it. <laughs> Uh, I think that, you know, there's seasons, you know, there's, there's winter, there's summer, there's, you know, people are wearing different things. People are, you know, and I, I don't know. I think for, you know, for some people, like for people like, uh, Bodie and people like Wallace, uh, it's all they know. You know, you get that sense when, when Wallace goes down to the Carolinas or something, stay with his mm-hmm. grandma and, when Bodie has to drive up to Philadelphia, I know, and they has to listen to Prairie Home Companion on the on the radio because he doesn't know any radio station. That was amazing. Yeah. I love the juxtaposition. This is this is a different universe. It's like, yeah. He's like the caterpillars were uh, uh, early this year, and uh, it was a nice day in Lake Wobegon. And he's like, "What the fuck is this? Is this isn't this isn't like a like what is this? What happened to the radio?" He's like, "Well, this is the radio outside of Baltimore." And he's like, "I thought the radio was the same everywhere." Like, no, but so I think like even though you know Baltimore may be a somewhat unpleasant place at times, at the same time, like we have to understand these people live there the whole lives and you know I, I think um, okay at the beginning of season three what happens can you remind me what happens at the beginning of this episode oh, I think see. I know what happens but I don't want to spoil it if I'm wrong yeah yeah well we're back I think focusing on the Barksdale crew pretty much uh, Proposition Joe and Stringer have come to kind of some kind of detente as far as sharing the real estate because the towers have been demolished and now yeah, okay that's that's the point I wanted to make the demolishing of the towers yes right? mm-hmm that's that's the beginning scene, I think, right? The guy, right. all the young guys, poop, right. and the Bodie and those guys are sitting out there watching them come down, mm-hmm. and you know, and they have some sentimental attachment to these these you know these drug dens that they mm-hmm. ran for however many years. And Poot's talking about, you know, he slept with some girl there, he lost his virginity in the tower or something. <laughs> yeah, and it was like, funny. Like you know, that. for these people, I mean, these, this this place has sentimental value and kind of vicariously through that we can appreciate the Yeah. Place. Yeah, and I think and I think a lot of people are like that. I mean, you mentioned people that we you went to high school with and, and grew up with and, you know, not being able to imagine a world outside of that. You know what I mean? And there is no, like... 
if they just think this is the greatest area ever and it's like and you would know because you've been other places no <laughs> just because you can't imagine yeah. anywhere else like and i think that's true for a lot of people in a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different places it's like wherever you happen to have you know popped out that's where it seems like that's the world you know and if if you don't have any imagination or any kind of focus or dreams beyond that that is the world and there is no other reality so yeah yeah that that's why i don't really object to the place i guess because for some people this is their place and you know for five seasons i'm getting to inhabit this world with them and and live this way with them that this is the this is the universe basically is the the the, the, the county limits around baltimore so mm-hmm. yeah well that's definitely true so and again maybe one one day when i when i do gather my strength to rewatch the wire i will uh, be able to appreciate it on these other levels that you're talking about but it's it's kind of a i'm, I'm kind of binge watching it sort of so it's it's all kind of hitting me at once and i have no familiarity with this place and it just seems like such a wasteland to me so yeah yeah that's yeah probably true that uh the first time you 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 expressed some frustration at the episode of the basketball game you said like i didn't feel like i really was supposed to know like Mm -hmm. i felt like they just kind of dropped the basketball game on me and i didn't really know the context and suddenly and i and i kind of said well you know that was kind of setting up prop joe and the east Mm -hmm. side west side Mm -hmm. and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and now that i mean now that you're more fully aware of like who prop is joe is and what his situation is do you still feel the same way about the basketball episode or do you feel like it was it was doing some other functions that were not immediately apparent at the time? Well, I still think that's the, how this show operates is that especially that opening scene before the credits roll, they do kind of throw you into an unfamiliar situation and they set up what's going to happen in the rest of the show or the rest of the episode anyway. And I, I still think that's how the show kind of operates in general, it's like you remember in mm-hmm. Calvin and Hobbes on the Sunday version how they would have that one yeah. top two panels. two panels or whatever that would be unrelated to the rest of the strip. I kind of felt like mm-hmm. it's kind of like that. It's like you don't they don't really tell you why this is happening at the initial, but like by the time you get done reading the whole comic, you realize why that was there. So I still think that's mm-hmm. kind of where the way the storytelling of the show operates in that they introduce this idea. They don't give you any warning about what it is, just with the promise that, you know, and, and that even happens to a quieter degree in that one episode. I forget which episode and which season, but when I think it was at the end of season one when uh, when Bubbles is first trying to get clean mm-hmm. and you see him just sitting there on the bench and he's just staring at the people and you don't really know why are we watching Bubbles sitting on the bench watching people in a park. This, this seems like a waste. But at the end you realize yeah. he's trying to get clean. This is what the world feels like to him when he's not getting high and he's watching other people buy drugs wishing he could do that. And you don't know that at the time, of course, unless you are totally clued in. And you're not going to be totally clued in until you see what comes next. So I think that may be just the way this the show operates. Um, I, that was a little extra confusing to me because in the show, or in that episode with the basketball game, even when they introduced the basketball game, like Proposition Joe was wearing like a suit and tie and a clipboard, right? And then Avon's like, you trying to act like you're a real coach or whatever. And he kind of did look like a real coach. And I thought this was just some guy that they got to coach this basketball. I didn't realize that was like going to be a main character going forward. So I, even in that moment, I was still like, 
Okay, so is this guy, does he matter? Is Avon just yelling at him because he's some minor character that's pretending like he's a basketball coach? I don't know, it was still in that moment a little confusing to me why he was. Of course, I get now, in retrospect, who Proposition Joe is, but, you know what I mean? I think that's just yeah. how this show operates as far as, like, storytelling. What do you think? But, well, yeah, but I think a lot of shows have, I, I, I don't know if they're copying that, but I think it's much more commonplace right now. And it's, all, it's almost getting done to death, I would say. Like, I mean, if you watch watch uh you know especially like better call Saul mm. it's mm-hmm. extremely like that I think breaking well, bad, breaking bad was like that is, absolutely yeah the, definitely I, I think um the walking dead has a lot of that fear the walking dead definitely mm-hmm. has a lot of that they just kind of throw you in something and they like they they pointedly don't explain anything and then by the end of the episode you're like oh okay so that was like, right okay that's where this yeah that's how we got there so and maybe the wire was the first one to really do that you know um yeah, or although i mean i think other shows probably did that beforehand but you know that's i i would be curious which ones they were because i'm not i can't remember i mean i guess you could say even like friends and stuff did that but it wasn't quite as esoteric as like what we're talking about, you know, like at the beginning of a friend's episode, they'd be all be sitting in the do 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 do, and they're all sitting in the coffee place and talking about something. But that didn't even really have anything necessarily to do with the rest of the episode. It was just kind of a little vignette that was like, "Wow, you're watching Friends. Here we go." You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, but you know everything means something in this show, so that's a, that's the only reason that you're all kind of like peeling your eyes and like trying to figure out like what what details am I supposed to be getting from this? Because you know it's not a throwaway. You know a lot of those things are throwaways in more frivolous TV shows, and it's just a fill space or whatever. But like yeah, you know that there's no wasted space in this show, so you just pay attention. That's yeah. That's and, and and the thing is, I wouldn't even stress about it. I would just say I know I'm going to watch this again later, so. The first time, mm-hmm. I'm not going to really stress about what everything means. I'm just going to say, okay, I'm just going to take it all in, experience it, just, you know, live in the world, and, uh, you know, I'll come back later, and I'll, I'll gain a lot more, you know, because I know where this is going to go and what this is actually leading towards. Um, but I, I don't know. I think it's kind of like life in that respect. I mean, you know, things happen every day, and you don't always know the importance of the import of a given mm-hmm. event. But later, it takes on more meaning and stuff. And well, and also in retrospect, everything becomes just like a narrative in your mind because you have to tell yourself a story about what just happened. So, in when the moment, it doesn't yeah. make any sense, but you kind of have to eventually make sense of it. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, and I think like I mean, in a way. You know, you you might think like, well, anybody in Baltimore would know that this basketball game was important. But I think we were the audience is kind of coming into it, kind of like the police. They say, "Where is everybody? Oh, what? There's a basketball game. Who's playing? What the hell's going on?" And then they go there and they're like, "Somebody says, hey, I think Avon is here somewhere, but I can't. I don't know which one he is." Mm-hmm. And then they find them and stuff. And and so then, you know, so if we're confused, I think it's also because the police were totally confused and when they attended the basketball game. But sure. I, yeah, again, I, I, you, you don't have to catch everything the first time. You can't catch everything the first time. And like I just said with the uh, with the Gatsby thing, mm-hmm. with, the, with the callback to the earlier scene, right. there's stuff I didn't even really get the second time. Yeah. But, you know, this, this show absolutely benefits from repeat viewings. Mm-hmm. You gain a lot. Right, right. And so so I would not I would totally not stress about like feeling like you're missing something the first time because yeah, just enjoy it. <laughs> okay. Because the first time is just a kind of a uh you know, no expectations, just, you know, 
absorb what it has to throw at you and then later you're going to come back and just you know kind of plumb the depths for mm-hmm. more hidden meanings and stuff yeah but yeah well is there anything else about season two you wanted to say hmm um well, we, we talked on uh, Facebook about the line um, when Jay Landsman in the, the homicide department mm-hmm. uh, talks to the, the woman from the – she's the police officer who works down on the docks and stuff, and she's, mm-hmm. like, kind of detailed to the case or something there with them or something. And, and he's like uh, – you know, while there's a small charm to a woman in uniform, the fact remains that here in Homicide, we 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 wear plain clothes, which is not to say that the clothes need be plain. For you, I'd recommend a pantsuit, muted colors, something that is like something to uh, what do you say? Something to offset the the pinstripe loggerly affectations of bunk here and the uh, the, the tweedy impertinence of uh, of uh, Freeman. <laughs> it's like I, I'm butchering it. You you might have to include the sound drop in there if you can without like uh, okay without triggering a you know a season desist order for sure. or something. Absolutely. But like because that that was an epic just an epic beautiful line that was that was like one of the best lines of the whole series. I think it's like it was just such a you know, some writer somewhere is showing off with that one because that was gold. Officer, uh... Russell. I am informed that you are detailed to this case as a liaison with the Port Police. I also understand that, uh, you are the only help that your department is sending. That's so? Although there is some small charm to a woman in uniform, the fact remains we work plain clothes in homicide. Which is not to say that the clothes need be plain. For you, I would suggest some pantsuits, perhaps muted in color. Something to offset Detective Moreland's pinstripe lawyerly affectations and the brash, tweedy impertinence of Detective Freeman. Rawls is watching on this one. Let's at least pretend we got a fucking clue. Tweedy impertinence. I like that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, for for me, like, Rawls and Landsman are just endlessly hilarious because they're just such, you know, I I think of the homicide department of the Baltimore Police Department as kind of like one of the circles of hell. (laughs) And these are just two little, like, kind of cheerful little demons who inhabit the place and torment everybody. <laughs> it's just like, but they're so you know, terrible. He's eating, a, he's eating a turkey sandwich. He's got turkey hanging off of his fingers and stuff. And he's like, just badgering these guys about their clothing choices. And, right. and yeah. And, and you had the line too. You said something like, um, what, Jimmy McNulty says something to Bunk about his clothes, and Bunk says something back or something. Oh yeah, well uh, they're staking out. I, I forget if it was the Greek or the guy that was working with the Greek, but uh, they're McNulty and him were talking about their clothes because uh, I guess Bunk knows a lot about uh, designers, obviously because he's a very well dressed man, and uh, uh, Jimmy's obviously trying to take him down a notch, and he's like, you know what they call a man that worries that much about his clothes, don't you? And 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 he's Bunk's like yeah an adult <laughs> yeah. yeah it's uh it's it's great it's great this this yeah this show again it's it's all important and stuff and like nothing there's no throwaway scenes there's mm-hmm. no time filler mm-hmm. scenes there's no dumb subplots that just are to like you know to keep a character on screen or something it's just like it's 
it's a it's a great just I mean it's great it's just perfect mm-hmm. I, I think it's almost perfect mm-hmm. it's not perfect no show could be maybe but this is as close to a perfect show as you can get I think as far as just working on so many levels right mm-hmm. I mean um, like I think I think TV shows on on basic cable are trying to get a little bit edgier but they still have all these restrictions about what they can and can't do and what they can and can't say you know. And it's just like, I think it's the sad thing about people who would protest a show that said a bad word or had some nudity in it or was extremely violent or something. The sad thing about it is, is that they're really depriving themselves Mm -hmm. because they're just, they're they're limiting themselves to stupid television, right? Like we have this idea that television is stupid and the the boob tube or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. but when you, when you're watching a show like this, you don't feel like it's stupid Mm -hmm. and maybe that's an illusion, but you know, you, people compare it to a novel. Like the show is kind of like a novelist. And not a stupid novel, but like a, a, a deeply thinking novel, like mm-hmm. a serious novel. Um, and I, I think so. I mean, I, I think the fact that we've been able to talk, you know, for two or three hours or however long we've talked about the show so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may be that when we record the next episode, I may be having like a whole bunch of other scenes from season three that I'm wanting to bring up again. Because, mm-hmm. And in fact, I almost guarantee that'll happen. But, yeah. you know. But the fact that we have this much material to engage with on this show, you know, if you watch CSI, if you watch NCIS or some bullshit like that, what are you going to talk about? It? Yeah. I, I liked when he caught the killer. Yeah. Yeah. It's like last week. Like, yeah. I, th- I thought he was going to get away, but he didn't. You know, it's like, what the hell would you even talk about with those shows? You know, I like how the main character is always right. He's so, he's so much smarter than everybody around him and nobody understands him. But he's also tortured. He's tormented. He's got issues, but he's perfect. This, this is the level that most television operates at. And and most movies, and this is why this is why like HBO is eating everybody's fucking lunch, right? <laughs> because they've discovered uh, oh, complicated heroes or your you know complex main characters, really complex, not like not like a house show or something where oh he's little, he's little OCD and he's an asshole to everybody around him, but yeah. he's actually really really smart and he's smarter than everybody else. And he's always right. <laughs> it's like that's that's what they think complex right. is. It's like no. Yeah, you know, go watch this show and then, and then, then come back and talk to me about those other shows. Right. Well, when you just mentioned that that nobody understands him thing, that reminded me of the scene from the beginning of season three when Herc and Carver are out. Uh, where are they on the west or with the west side? Is it? They're they're out on their own detail with that one guy. Um, but it was that scene where they're just chasing that one kid around, and uh, and and <laughs> Herc is playing the theme from Shaft, and he's like, <laughs> "Oh yeah, who is the man?" <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that's. I, I I'm gonna have to watch it again because it's been been a couple of years. I don't know. There's I just those that. little like little scenes where this it, it's these little moments that just crack me up, and it's a hilarious show in certain ways. It's of course a tragic and heavy show in, in most ways but there are these little flashes of just just total humor that that you don't catch unless you're like really paying attention and know these characters and you know it's like Hurricane Carver have these 
like visions of being like you know <laughs> after whatever. <laughs> like, and it, yeah. you know, he's he's playing it for laughs, but I bet in his mind, Herc really is like thinking of himself in sh- Shaft in that moment. You know. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's yeah. Those Herc and Carver are, are pretty funny. Yeah. Sometimes. And, uh, yeah, I, I think like, yeah, I, I'm thinking about like the shift in the season two at the beginning, I think in the first episode, uh, he's, I think he's talking to Kima or something and he's like, uh, and, and this, this conversation kind of presages season two being, you know, largely about this, this group of largely white, mm-hmm. you know, uh, stevedores and stuff. He said, like, um, you know, Kima, I've got, like, mad respect for black people and stuff. Like, I've been tracing this this white gang, and these guys are like, uh, he's like, I go up to him, I'm like, I want to buy some drugs. And they're like, oh, we'll sell you the drugs. How many drugs, how much drugs do you want? He's like, he's like, he's like you guys are knuckleheads or something. There should be affirmative action for white drug dealers or whatever. Yeah, yeah, he said, I think that's one of his lines there. And then, you know, we meet people like Ziggy and White Mike. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. over there and we kind of see that and stuff and like um yeah yeah it's it's yeah again they were setting that up but they were also kind of like evolving the character of of Herc a little bit and and Herc you know I don't have you have you met uh Carcetti 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 what's his name Gar- Garcetti uh what the hell's his name in who, who would that be would that be the uh he's the guy from Game of Thrones Oh, is this the city councilman or whatever? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Gar- Gar- what's his name? What the hell's his name? It's I think it's Garcetti. 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 Maybe. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. 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 His character is. Yeah, he, he's an interesting character as well. And and like I said, season two was about the about the you know the de- decline of uh, organized labor in America and so forth. And uh, season one was about you know. I don't know, the police and the drug gang and stuff and, you know, this kind of thing. Season three is largely going to be about politics, um, and that's going to be fascinating, I think, local politics and mm-hmm. this kind of thing. And season three also, have you met, uh, what's his name, Bunny? I think his name is Bunny or something. He looked like a bunny. I forget his name, actually. Bunny? He's one of the, he's like a, I don't know, he's like a colonel or something. He, he's in the, I don't know what he is. He's he's pretty high up in the police department. Is this the guy that, with the brown bag and that speech, that guy? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, because yeah, I think he's the one that's right. working with uh, Hurricane Carver, right? Okay, yeah. Yeah, this season three has a, has a plot point that is... On the one hand, it seems like something that could happen somewhere and maybe get covered up. But on the other hand, it seems like something that is just a total fantasy. But it, it serves as kind of like a thought experiment or whatever in the show. Mm-hmm. Well, well let's let's save that for, for, for next time since we haven't really gone too deep into season three. But yeah, yeah I know you're I think I know what you're referring to there. So. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll yeah, we, we probably should wrap up kind of for like, mm-hmm. but. Again, I'm going to have more to talk about as I watch the remaining nine episodes of season two. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to you know, try to get up to where you're at yeah. on season three and stuff. Right. For, but, uh, yeah, I think we talked about it a little bit on Facebook, but uh, the music in this show is just great. Like, they really use music well, I think. Yeah. Yeah, every season has a different version of the same song. 
uh, to keep the devil down in the whole thing. Yeah. The um, season two one was the original by Tom Waits. Oh, was this the original then? Season two's is, yeah. Mm-hmm. That was the first version. Okay. And then every other one is a cover. Okay, for some reason, I, I like season two's version best, I think. I yeah, think that's, that's, that's the original one. I didn't one. know it was the original. Mm-hmm. I, thought, yep. I thought the season one was the original. No, every no. Other one I kind of thought that too before I looked it up, actually. But it's no, it was it's by a song by Tom Waits. So. Hmm. Yeah, um, I love the closing scene, uh, mm-hmm. sound, uh, music. I think it's The Fall. Do you know who the author is? I don't know. Too? Yeah, I know you're talking about the, the closing credits scene uh, music. Yeah. yeah. To, to me, the closing credits music seems like music that would be on a conventional television pop show. Mm-hmm. Or, and, you know, a show that's maybe trying to be a little bit more serious than it actually is. But I like that song. It's, it's classy. It's complex. It makes me think of an urban city environment. Mm-hmm. Like, not the inner city necessarily, but like kind of like a, you know, the more like the upscale, like kind of like the world that um, mm-hmm. was it Daniels, Daniels and his wife kind mm-hmm. of inhabit. Kind of, mm-hmm. kind of like a... I don't know. It, it. I think I said on the thing. It makes me feel classier than I actually am. <laughs> the, the, sound, the, the music at the end, end credits definitely like wow. You know, it makes me think. It's like, wow, this is yeah. You know, it's smart music in a right, way. Right, right. But it's it's complex. I like it. But I liked and the again, uh, two yeah, choices for the songs I've heard so far for the end of season montage wrap up songs. I don't know what the first one was, uh, something like the devil smiling or something, and then uh, the second one was. Uh, Steve Earle song called I Feel Alright which I did know before and I, that's a great song guy who plays Waylon so oh okay he, he's the one who sings it mm-hmm. yeah that's a Steve Earle song wow mm-hmm. okay and I believe he wrote that song after he got clean because I think he was on heroin and cocaine until like the mid 90s and then he got clean and I think that was like the first album he had after then so but yeah that's the guy that plays wow. Waylon Steve Earle he sings that song okay I wonder who wrote the song in the series then if that's not the guy oh yeah <laughs> how could they exist in the same about, right exactly <laughs> you ever think about that whoa <laughs> yeah mind blown <laughs> so, yeah yeah the music is good I think um, I think they played a few bars of the Cisco Kid or something oh yeah by war that was a great one yeah I like that <clears throat> and, and that, I, I don't know why they played that song necessarily but it I, the message was clear. Avon Darksdale is a bad man. Right? <laughs> like that's, that's, that's basically what they're saying. Yep. <laughs> but, but, um, yeah, well, I should, cool uh, well, yeah. yeah, I should probably wrap up cause I gotta get going, but yeah, good talking to the wire with you and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll keep watching. I'll just watch a little slower, maybe savor the third okay. season here. So, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to cramp your style, but I do, I do worry. I'm working my, I'm working my little tukas off over here in Korea and I don't know how many episodes I'm going to be able to cram in the week here. So yeah, I'll do my best. Hey, I'll uh, get back with you probably next week. Is that cool? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Let's keep this train rolling. This yeah. is a, uh, there's lots to talk about. This this show has layers, and it's just you know endless. So. Yeah, yeah. And I hope I hope it's enjoyable equally for our audience. I hope some of our audience is uh, watching along with us. Yeah. If it's the first time, or if they've seen it before, I I know they don't mind watching it again. Yeah, yeah. But um, you know, leave some comments somewhere. Yeah, if, for if sure. You are, if you do. Yeah. Uh, we'd love to have that audience participation. That kind of the the, the give and take. 
so forth. Right, right. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I'll definitely promote it and see what we can get for as far as audience feedback here. Like I said, I know people are listening because I know I've seen the stats, people. I know you're out there. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I have no idea what's going on in the <laughs> void here, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> little, little did Sean know we haven't been recording. <laughs> <I'm kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bob just wanted to have a conversation. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm lonely over here. I want to talk to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, it's like the yeah. My life and the the Rob Burgess show is the Truman Show. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> but uh, all right, we'll we'll have a good day there, Bob. And yeah, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. I'm gonna keep watching. I'm gonna you know get back into it and stuff. And get some episodes put down. And, yep. Uh, we'll do some more soon. Cool. I got the day off tomorrow because tomorrow's election day, local elections. Awesome. In so the bongo trucks will stop broadcasting outside <laughs> of my place of employment. And who knows? I don't know. We had a we had a funny moment. I heard today that some politician, a Korean politician from my my city, who's in the National Assembly, mm-hmm. basically Congress, he apparently had this quote. He said something two days ago where he said, um, "This other city called Buchan." He said, um, "He said people move to Buchan when they get divorced." <laughs> and then he said, "After that, they move to Incheon after they run out of money in Buchan." <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, some uh, a politician from my city drastically insulted two other comparably sized and larger cities. <laughs> so I don't know what the fallout is going to be. From that. <laughs> so, we have to let us know how it all, all works out for him. <laughs> it was a hilarious quote. Though, so. Oh, I, I had a I had a joke. Okay, hold on. All right, let's, let's uh, hear it. Koreans, okay, Koreans often mispronounce, uh, you know, like LASIK eye surgery or whatever. Yep. Well, they say Lashik. Lashik. Mm-hmm. They always say that. And so they got Lashik, something like that. So I said, uh, okay, so I said, uh, why, why, did the, uh, why did the Koreans want to go to. Um, uh, oh, hold on, let me see. God, it's so hard to set up a joke the right way. Okay, why did the Korean with bad eyesight want to go to an Indian, uh, op- uh, what is it, optometrist? Is mm-hmm. that the right yep. word for mm-hmm. it? Optometrist, yep. Yeah, and you know, oh, why? Uh, because he wanted to get a mango lashik. <laughs> they, they, nice. they don't say lasik, they say lashik, mango lashik, mango lassie, whatever. Nice. <laughs> That's how I'm living over here. Using <laughs> my students with one dumb joke after another. Right, exactly. Learning English along the way, hopefully. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, how can you learn if you're not. Are you not entertained? <laughs> so, anyways, I'll, I'll leave our audience with that. Okay, cool. But, um, <laughs> all right, Bob, we'll talk to you soon. All right, have, have a good night. <laughs> Later. Right, bye-bye. Later.
If you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. And if you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Until next time.